what you say, sometimes the vegetable terrible at the hospital, mm -hmm. he, he would control his own dying process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, you don't want to be this, this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been thinking about your death in the same terms? I mean, you have been talking about I would say it's a, it's a very problem. They always the, there is no disappearance. It must be an, an art of Like, you know, I can just run this through the computer itself. Yes, I hear you perfectly fine. So, okay, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like super fucking excited. You know, I, I haven't been this excited in a long time. And I, I get home, I actually pull off the side of the road because I'm just like too right. excited. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking, I'm like, wait, there's something wrong. And I was like, wait, they printed this book backwards. Because what I got- How does that happen? I have no idea. I guess it's the book binder because they have to outsource the page printing to the binder. And I guess the binder yeah. just ordered them wrong or something. Yeah, like, 
I feel like that somebody would like notice that, but then like I think of like all the shitty jobs I've had where I just like quit paying attention to what I'm doing. It's like actually I could see where that could happen. Like right, it's, a, it's also such a weird book because because <laughs> yeah. when I got it and I picked it up from the guy, it's like I was reading through this. It's like man, this is a trip. What <laughs> <laughs> what's the book called again? It's called The Specter of Finance Punk. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> this is really exciting. This makes my day much better because I've been following your work for a while. Yeah. I read your book, Uncertain Futures, like five years ago or something like that. Oh, shit, really? Yeah. Like... And, and it's funny because we're on the topic of recession maxing. Mm-hmm. I'm a recession truther. I think that we're... I am absolutely a recession truther. I don't know if you saw, but like they're doing this whole thing where they're trying to revise the definition of what like a recession is. And if you like Google recession and like look at like the top headlines, they already got, you know, the the, the fact checking regime is out, you know, the Atlantic and Business Insider, you know, tut tutting like it's not really a recession. Uh, like uh, under I, under what <laughs> new stable definition are we not in a recession? Like that's, uh, <laughs> I, I let, let me look up because I actually I took a screenshot of it on my phone because I like I was like what the fuck, yeah so like kind of the the you know the shorthand version of how they like define a recession is if you have like two consecutive quarters of like negative GDP growth it's like okay you're in a recession, but like the White House's website says like. Oh, uh, that is neither the official definition nor the way that economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Um, it says both official determinations of recessions, blah, 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 are based on a holistic look at the data, including the labor market, consumer and business spending, industrial production and incomes. Based on these data, it is unlikely that the decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year um, indicates a recession. And so it's just like, they're saying like, you know, even if there are like two consecutive quarters of falling GDP growth, like it's still not a recession. It, it, it's such like a weasel worm, like way to go about it. You know, it's just like, well, all these, you know, you just pick which metric you want to, you know, ser serve the data here. But then it's like, you know, look around. Like you'd have to be fucking stupid not to like recognize like what it is that we're in right now. Yeah. Whenever whenever they throw around the term holistic, you know you're like about to hear yeah. some shit. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you're you're in for some like fucking well, yeah, bullshit's the perfect word. Like it's just like fucking tech lingo. Yeah, it's it's really funny. But yeah, so your book was kind of like a Marxian account of the great recession. So it's yeah. kind of like, and I feel like people are really skirting around this moment right now where they're just like absolutely kind of like trying to not admit what's going on. And they're like, oh no, it's coming, it's coming. And they keep sort of like hedging it yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> so that the edging model of like economics, like the, you know, the World Economic Forum, everybody is just like, oh, you know, we're, we're almost to the, you know, we're almost to recession, but not quite, uh, which is really strange. Cause like, yeah, when I wrote that book, like, which is funny, cause like that book was actually a bunch of notes from like a reading group mainly. And so it's, it's always weird for me to think of it as like a book that I wrote. Cause in a lot of ways, like I just took these notes 
and kind of put them together and then submitted them to like zero books to like see what would happen. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll publish it. And I was like, oh shit. Like, I didn't think that's actually what would happen. Um, but like, I, I read like lots of reporting on the recession back then. And there, there was, there's like nothing that was like remotely approaching the way that they like go about it. Now there, there was none of this, like, you know, casting it into the future, you know, changing definitions. Like it was, very real and concrete and recognized like, okay, yeah, this is what we're in. And so that's actually like really kind of fucked up and kind of scary in a lot of ways that even just like, you know, a, a concrete financial crisis, which is like the worst thing that could befall, like, you know, huge masses of people that they could just pretend isn't happening. But it also just like, I don't know. I feel like that that's a really natural progression of where we've been for like, you know, in the last two or three years, if not like the last fucking decade. Yeah, no, definitely. It's 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 kind of funny because like Jean France, like whatever that press, she's not exactly like D and G, like Guattari, who is basically like st who stated like there's no longer really a need to maintain the distinction between like material and semiotic deterritorialization. Or like yeah. the kind of like primacy of one system over another, which is kind of like mm -hmm. well, I want to get into Baudrillard, you know. So it's like it's different because when like there there was a like very specific phenomena at that time where it's like well post for you know it was called like post Fordism, you know the Ford factory right. had sort of gone way and it in. So like Leotard and Deleuze were like looking at ways to reevaluate the economy. Baudrillard famously. Um, kind of inverted the sort of like Marxist take of it being like, instead of labor and production, he he kind of challenged that that through like this model of consumption. And so now we're yeah. sort of in this mode where I feel like people are sort of like fidgeting around to call this what it is. It's like, no, 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 this is just like a recession and it, it's shitty. But, but how, like, what kind of it because it feels psychedelic to me like the way the last <laughs> one felt you know yeah like and that's so, so funny because like i i didn't realize that, that like other people had like the kind of cultural experience of the the previous recession so like i feel like your experience in the OA recession was like identical to mine because it was like yeah like everything fucking sucks and i'm you know just doing these weird ass jobs but, you know, I'm just going to drink, like, cheap beer and play in my garage band. But I think that maybe there's, like, something, like, a little, a little deeper than that, too. Because, you know, in these moments of financial crisis, like, it's also where things kind of all get, you know, stood on their head. And things that weren't previously possible kind of do in a weird way. And I read this really interesting book. It was, it's called Communal Havens. And it's about like um, religious movements in the U.S. and these kind of like waves of migrations of like, I don't know, these weird kind of almost doomsday Christian sects, you know, going back to like the 1600s. And they would like go out into the wilderness and try to start what they called like community of good, community of goods, where it's, you know, kind of like kind of communistic. Everybody would kind of share everything. Uh, and they continued to just like, push further and further like into the frontier they would do these things before you know like the industrial push to the frontier so they were really kind of the vanguard of it 
But like what this book argues is that you can correlate all these like religious experiences to recessions. Like every time like a recession happened in the U.S., there would be these like bizarro cultural mutations that would start to like spring out from it. They'd be like, oh, we don't have to live this way or we can do it a different way. You know, we don't have to be in these places. We can experiment in this new place. And I'm not sure if like, like it's really compelling. And I, I think that there's probably like more that, you know, could really be dug into, into that relationship. Because in a way, I mean, those are like prototypes of kind of the classical kind of psychedelic kind of psychosphere that that you're describing. Yeah, definitely. And you saw um, a lot of sort of like uh, puritanical spirals actually you know, like a Gombin, he brings this up a lot. And I, I've read about this in like various other texts and articles, how mm-hmm. when whenever there seems to be sort of like a doomsday scenario or a virus or some sort of contagion, right. there's like, it always kind of like coincides with a like messianic religious fervor of some kind, you know, like, like, like the peak witch trials started like, propping up during like the black plague and the medieval. Right. So, so it's like funny because I remember when COVID first happened and it felt very different than it felt now. It felt like very sort of like visceral and everything was like mm-hmm. super clear because, you know, you, you sort of got this feeling like the mist, like the, the, mystical arrival was like here or something right now i I thought something was happening with like a capital h like i'll admit it like i thought like oh shit man like while things are about to happen like it's kind of a crushing disappointment you know oh totally yeah yeah it is disappointing and it but but the recession feels sort of like hazy and murky but yeah when Mm -hmm. we're talking about our experiences it's weird because it's like yeah it's like playing in garage bands i didn't have any money i just would go to the bulb by the waterfront and just like drink forties and hang out with this <laughs> homeless guy who lived on a tugboat and I would get in his <laughs> tugboat awesome. and drink with him. And yeah, and I'd be listening to Sun City Girls. And you know, it's funny because like the recession almost uh, achieves the ideal of abolishing time in a weird way. And it does. And I, I don't know, like, I don't know how to theorize that if it's something that can be like put into a theoretical framework because mine was like the same way. Like also funny. Cause I was listening to like a shit ton of the sun city girls in that, like that period. Um, and I was just working in like a fucking like novelty company's warehouse, like de- delivering these big goofy ass games. And then just like, yeah, just drinking and like jamming out afterwards. And it, I think it did have kind of an effect of sort of the, the breakdown of your usual coordinates of time because like under like very strict capital capitalistic society, you know, it's all future oriented, you know, like what is the point of saving money? And the point of saving money is for like, you know, f- future like positions that you can insert yourself into, you know, when, when you take a loan out from a bank, you know, that there's a, an IOU at like a future date, um, like business plans are executed like in the future. 
uh, development projects are future oriented. And so there's always this kind of orientation where it's like the future is, you know, you're at the cusp of it and it's kind of colonized in a certain way by a certain like, uh, well, you can even call them like imaginary systems. But but when you're in a financial crisis, like none of that really applies anymore. Like your, your very like business plan becomes hazy. You know, what, what, what your savings get decimated um, you know, your IOUs, you know, your, your promises to pay at the future simply don't hold anymore. So maybe that's what it is. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually interesting, but it's, it's almost like academia has functioned off that model for like a long, you know, at least a long mm-hmm. time in that, you know, student loans are, are sort of like, you know, you take out like the minimum, whatever, and you just, people don't pay it back. And, right. you know, and it's just one of those things where it's like the 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 academy no longer sort of secures a future in the way that it did. But, yeah, it's actually really interesting because we actually talked a little about like like time versus space and how like mm-hmm. they're like, I'm a little bit more of a space head right now. And, it, you know, thinking yeah, about yeah, like the way. Same. Yeah, it's like weird because, you know, I've been like reading a bunch of Baudrillard again and, you know, getting into his whole kind of like you know, it always seems like super American in this recession. It just, it's like pure Americana in this weird fucked up way. But yeah, it's (laughs) it's weird because like, you know, the roles of objects as they're sort of like stationed within a space, you know, they denote like a kind of function, you know, they were sort of like patriarchal at a certain set, like, Mm -hmm. you know, they have like a consistency to it. Yeah. There's a consistency to the way like objects structured, like, one's role or subjectivity Mm -hmm. and it's really really weird because like when you have this kind of like privation stage like you're sort of like the roles that you're delineated by your ability to move objects well you don't have the objects and you're just sitting on the internet so it's like time just feels really fucking weird but at the same time like i feel like a lot of the kind of like quasi, um, yeah, no, it's, it's that I kind of lost my train of thought, but yeah, no, no, it's really funny because I feel like people are just like going outside a lot right now, but nobody really knows what to do because it's like cost too much money to like do too much stuff. And it's, yeah. So it's weird. It's like, I've been, I've just been sort of like thinking about that. And also it's just kind of like, the idea of recession maxing is like pretty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wrote a, a an incredible little piece for for what is the magazine? Um, uh, your song essentials, right? Yeah, uh, it was for Counter, and I just wrote that up yeah, in like con- five minutes or whatever. You know, I was just like, all right, this is kind of like my recession summer survival guide, and you know, for some reason, like Exotica you know, desert islands. And I read, you know, you put me onto the desert islands text by Deleuze and that like totally was just like, Oh man, this is totally where I I fucking love that piece. And I'm going to like be straight. Like I have no idea what he's really saying in that piece. Like, like he's, he's just going off and there's like so many things where I can like pick out and be like, okay, you know, like, but it's like, I feel like it was just that piece is just like about vibes, isn't it? Right. Like, well, there's like, there well, seems to be like an attack against vibes, you know, right now where it's like mm-hmm. people are are sort of saying, you know, you get these kind of like NYU stuffy social Democrats who are like 
making fun of people who are doing things based on vibes. It's like, but you're a part of the class and the group of people who uh, decimated material conditions and made people reliant on immaterial modes of production and consumption. Therefore, you don't really get to say anything about it. You know, like your criticism is sort of like moot. And so there's really nothing wrong with vibes, right? Like I I feel Mm -hmm. like it's, it's getting a bad rap, but Hey, look, like this is just a situation we're in. So sorry to cut you off. Like, no, no. Like, uh, I actually, you know, I, I wanted to ask you like, because, um, in, in the very like last sentence of that piece, you wrote, you wrote, um, super fiction, Micronesia barbecue cornucopia mindset, which the cornucopia mindset is definitely something near and dear to my heart. Yeah, but you know, seeing you tweeting about Micronesia, it's like I, I wanted to ask, like, uh, what, what does Micronesia mean to you in in this circumstance? Is it just a, a set of like imaginal coordinates? Um, is this the the locus or the nexus of exotica? Like, like what is it for you? It, it, you know, it is, and it actually kind of corresponds to that Deleuze text. And my interpretation of desert islands is basically, it, it's it's very similar to. I mean, he sort of starts off where he talks about how the mainland, basically, mm-hmm. a desert island is something that's deserted, right? There are no people there and it becomes occupied by people who are fleeing a certain place, uh, which would essentially be like a mainland or a territory or even a peninsula, just something that's attached to like a greater body of us or an established framework of civilization and society. But Mm -hmm. he actually inverts that by claiming that when you go to the desert island, you desert it even more because you deserted the main set of, you know, uh, civil, uh, social structures that you came from. So it's like when you go to a desert island and he talks about how like a man can be a goddess, a, a man can be a mm-hmm. god, a woman can be a goddess. And he brings up like Easter Island heads and it's very, yeah. very sort of like psychedelic. And he's basically saying like the more psychedelic you make a place by being the kind of like refuse of a society or order that, um, you don't fit into the actually it's the more deserted you make it. And you actually, the Island stays deserted even as it gains occupancy. That is kind of like my reading Uh, into it, which is kind of like what I feel about like Texas or, you know, some of the stuff that like Baudrillard writes about like in America or something like that. And like the kind of like romanticism he has on this like European outsider, uh, you know, doing this kind of like ruffian American tour and just kind of like loving it so much. And it's, it's it, it, that it is like the perfect road novel. And I don't think like people read it as like a theoretical text, but like, I think you need to read it as like a tour guide, basically. Like I, it is just a classic, like it's him inhabiting a very quintessential American experience which is the driving across like America's great highways and in particular, like the drive in the westward direction. I right. Think. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah, because when he talks about deserts, you know, he goes luminous, fossilized network of inhuman intelligence of a radical. Yes, that is the best part of the book. <laughs> yeah, well, when yeah, he talks right about deserts. It's like, oh man, this is where my mind's at right now. Yeah, it's just like these like slow motion catastrophes, you know, like moving at these like time scales that are incomprehensible to man just like kind of like frozen crystallized catastrophe and the geology of the uh, desert landscape like oh it's it's fucking great yeah and he talks about white sands and i don't know if you've ever been to white sands new mexico i haven't oh it's incredible it's like it really is just white sand you know it's like more magnificent than like zabriskie point uh, but, you know, when he talks about like the white s- swell of white sands it, and he goes, it takes this surreality of the elements to eliminate nature's picturesque qualities, just oh. as it takes the metaphysics of speed to eliminate na- natural pic- picturesqueness of travel, which is a really weird word, picturesqueness. Yeah. Um, but is that like a do, do you think that that's like. The word that he was using i wonder if that's like an yeah artifact it, it translation. could be just like a weird translation thing from yeah. from you know the u.s to in french but it, yeah it, but it does feel that way to me like you know like there is something that's like very sort of like dripping and surreal about this moment and you know a lot more about sort of like the economic details of like recession than i do so this is all like you know, highly theoretical stuff. It's mm-hmm. fun stuff, but like, I want to hear more about like, cause you really get into the nitty gritty of all of this. So. Yeah. Like I, I guess, um, Oh man, I, I would don't even really know where exactly to begin because you know, the, the interesting thing, I guess to like wrap us back to uncertain futures, um, uh, is that, you know, I kind of developed a framework in that book that then kind of like, I don't necessarily agree with at this point. Like, I think that there's, uh, I think there's one like really, really, really like big political errors in that book. And it's kind of, um, the, the politics are like really kind of cringe lib in retrospect. Uh, but then I also think that in some of the like kind of economic analysis and in particular, like the, the reading of Marx and the falling rate of profit that I was think, really interesting. I remember that. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, I, I think it's really kind of the wrong <laughs> reading of it, actually. Um, and I guess kind of like to summarize it in a really, really kind of basic form is that like Marx, you know, he talks about what's called like the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So his argument is that like over time, you know, the rate of profit, which is the average profit realized by like capitalists as an entire, yeah, an entire class, you know, we're talking like the highest level, um, that their profit that they realize is declining. And, you know, the the more that it it goes down, the more there's a tendency towards crisis. And eventually it kind of reaches this fever pitch and capitalism comes to its end. And so like the way that it is traditionally read this is true for like the second international and it's true for countless Marxists. And it's true for how I wrote that book is that it interprets the falling rate of profit as like a tendency towards stagnation. Right. Whereas like the more the rate of profit falls, the more capitalism slows down, 
the more it just generally stagnates. It, I don't think that this is accurate to like what Marx was arguing because what Marx argues, he takes what he calls variable capital, which are like kind of the inputs for like human labor and what he calls like constant capital and constant capital is like your inputs for like machinery and raw materials. And so he's talking about how like, capitalists were always competing they're wanting to yeah. realize by cheapening you know, the, the yeah stuff that's kind of what he talks about with constant capital yeah by yeah very, it's cheapening yeah yeah, yeah. sorry but sorry. also no no you're, no you're good like interrupt me at any point because i have a tendency to ramble no no um, it's great <laughs> yeah yeah uh but it's like it's also like raising the productivity of labor so it's like mechanization is a good example like work becomes more automated and so it's like you can make more for less money with like less labor. And so like, you know, this kind of goes with Marx's whole argument that like what labor produces is what he calls surplus value and surplus value is the source of profit. And so as like constant capital expands, like industry becomes more mechanized and automated, you know, the less value is being imparted to commodities and in the biggest scale of it all that means lower profit now this might sound like really academic and like weird but the real point and this is what comes through in capital volume three is that he is arguing that the more robust and dynamic and strong capital is the more the rate of profit will fall his argument is not that the falling rate of profit is a stagnating situation. This is the more that capitalism is capitalistic, the more machinic it is, the more it basically annihilates itself. And this is where like Marx is really kind of verging into like Landian territory. Yeah. Um, and this is like the basis of like unconditional accelerationism. Like this is what we all kind of like started talking about in the beginning was like kind of trying to revise this like very kind of traditional reading that like crisis is about um, stagnation that, you know, and say instead that, you know, crisis in this mode that Marx is describing is capitalism getting strong. It's capitalism exploding upwards. Um, and so then you have a reciprocal point because, you know, empirically, and this is like where the book I think fails because it didn't understand Marx's argument in that way. I read Marx as a stagnationist. And so you have to say like, well, empirically, yes, it is true. We have been stagnating. Like it, it objectively so. You can't, there's like no two ways about it. Since the 1970s, you know, the early 1970s, if you want to talk about like the productivity of labor, it's falling like crazy and has been consistently. Yeah. Um, you know, the amount of money that's spent on like industrial, like machinery, advanced mechanization, it's not simply happening. We have a falling rate of profit, but it does not conform to that classical picture that Marx, you know, laid out. You know, Marx's argument is actually accelerationist, but our empirical reality is not an accelerationist reality. And so then you have to kind of reorient yourself and say like, you know, if it no longer conforms to like this classical Marxian picture, then what exactly is happening? And so like, and at that point, like we've just carried ourselves like beyond Marx and we are forced by necessity to become like post-Marxist because yeah. capitalism does not play the Marxist game at this point. 
It, it's strange. Sorry. Yeah, I remember reading like Damn Jehu's blog, and he mm-hmm. made he made a lot of similar arguments. Uh, yeah, to to ex- to the points that you were talking about right now. It's but it's interesting because like I always sort of use Marx as the framework for almost everything. You know what I mean? It's and I, it's something right. that I can't really help. It's just like embedded into me, and I still feel like it's a valuable historical clarifying tool but yeah when you talk about like the the stagnation of society i mean capitalism usually you know in the case of the world economic forum you know it usually needs sort of like a market at least the spectacle of a crisis in order to uh you know at the same time it's like because Marx was talking about a crisis not just for the masses but for the capitalist itself, yeah, it's it's hard now because we really have to reevaluate that because these crises are sort of like embedded into the the upward mobile transfer of power and resources to like a collective small fewer group of people, but it always sort of happens not because of like an like a contradiction within capital itself, but because ca- like the drive for capital produces the need for these like crazy made up crises that they can just further accumulate more power through like COVID mm-hmm. was one example. Uh, it's, I mean, COVID's like the perfect example yeah. of just kind of like, and, and you know, I'm not going to say that like there was nothing to COVID, but the way that the crisis was like conceptualized at the level of discourse, like is very clear in retrospect to have really just been like what one of the most magnificent, like upward transfers of wealth that I think, you know, we've ever seen, isn't it? Like it was the mass liquidation of like smaller capitalist concentration like the hands of a few, but also just like the stripping of political power in profound ways. I think that we don't really have a clear idea yet of like how wide sweeping it really is. But I I think that like we we passed some kind of very almost infernal threshold with the COVID crisis. Right. Yeah. So I'm actually really interested in like, what would a sort of post-Marxist politics, like American post-Marxist politics even look like? Because I see it almost kind of like within the Trump movement. And, you know, it's like you Mm -hmm. see, obviously this is like failed and there's like total grifters like J.D. Vance and all these people who are, you know what I mean? It's like, which is also classically American. Like it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we've ever had like a political movement like constructive or otherwise that didn't just have like snake oil salesmen like coming out. Like, I I don't know if that can, that's something that we can uh, ever really get away from. I'd like to get away from it. Um, But yeah, you know, it's really funny. And and part of me thinks like, because, you know, when I see someone like JD Vance or like Blake Masters talk, I'm just like, these fucking like robot reptile people, like, what are they even. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, really strange. Yeah. Like I don't even know how to explain it. I guess my explanation is like you had this kind of totally misread, you know, like Americana and you know, my, Mm -hmm. I have a theory that America is like 
is foundationally a precondition for post-Marxism to exist itself. Yeah, I, mean, I, even, I, I, want, I want to hear like, I want to hear more about that because I'm intrigued by it. I want to know more. Well, it's interesting to me because, you, you know, like uh, Nanteres or Paris X or I forgot how do you how you pronounce it. I I'm not good with pronouncing French at all. I mean, oh dude, I, I'm the worst. <laughs> if anybody like listens to Sudcast, like I just butcher foreign names for like hours. Oh, yeah. like, I, I had I, a, I am awful. <laughs> this like uh La scholar got really really mad because my friend was pronouncing Lariel <laughs> L'Oreal like the shampoo, <laughs> yeah. and he is like super super fucking angry about this, but. I just I don't really take people like that seriously because it's like <laughs> I mean if you if you look at the way like he defines heresy and it's not just edginess for edginess's sake I mean it's basically just a radical deviation but not an opposition from which the thing it comes from and he uses gnosticism as a lot of examples like a lot of these kind of like theory cell type people who don't like to have fun and they're just very canonical and they just stick to the 20th century yeah. and nothing else. It's like, it's you, the worst. you literally like you apply none of this in any sort of way that's interesting or funny. It's like, what is Deleuze says? He says the whole purpose of philosophy is the, is the creation of new concepts yet. Yeah. You know, none of that's happening, but, but so why can't, you come up with theories about America and postmark, you know, it, but it, it is kind of strange to me right now because some of, you know, it, it's, it's hard to like express exactly what I'm getting at because it's a feeling, mm -hmm. you know, so like Paris X was actually styled, you know, it was traditionally a home of like radical leftist student politics, but really it was styled after the American university system. So it was actually right. the most Americanized of the European kind of like graduate academic programs, which is why I always sort of equated a lot of the teachers and the faculty there with this kind of like Americanism. And Derrida specifically spoke about how Deconstruction is like inherently American because when he took it to America, people finally understood it. He was like, all right, this is this is where people can understand the the kind of not cultural Marxism because it's very, very different. Right. Like you have the mm -hmm. cultural Marxist like Adorno and your I have I have Frankfurt school. Frankfurt, yeah, your typical stuff that like the conservatives hate. And I'm not a big fan of a lot of that stuff either. And I haven't read much. Uh, of yeah, it. I'm really not at all. I'm so. not at all. But. But the kind of post-Marxist of Baudrillard is he was a materialist. You know, he's not looking yes. at things uh, through this like purely sort of like stuffy cultural lens. He was basically saying, whoa, 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 no, 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 wait, 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 like Fordism, we're, we are transferring, like there's a systemic transfer that is taking place and part of it has to do with who holds power, who has a monopoly mm -hmm. over like what truth is, which is essentially what Leotard had been arguing when he coined the term, you know, it's basically like, which is now the Democrat party and the neoconservatives. And you know what I mean? It's like they have yeah. power. Therefore we have to sort of reinstantiate a kind of truth outside of the framework or the dominion of their power itself 
because there is truth. Like there's no, there's never, no one ever said we're post truth. We're just looking for a truth outside of like, uh, you know, the Biden administration telling us we're not in a recession, you know, like <laughs> yeah. but the truth is it, it is sort of like post Marxist to make an analysis of that statement and be like, no, actually we are in a recession, even though you're telling us we're not. So I don't know if that makes any sense. But. Yeah, yeah, it, it does, because it, it, in a really kind of like interesting way, it, it is, you know, when the official narrative is that you're not in a recession, when, when like you objectively are, it, it is like smuggling the truth in via heresy, right? Is, is that what you're getting at? A little bit, yeah. Okay. And, and I guess the other thing that I would want to say, like in the context of like, well, it's, it's, it's like heresy in that, like what passes for truth in post-industrial society mm-hmm. is very much like the people who are at the head or the sort of like faces the of technocrats. These, the technocrats right. of these systems will therefore say it's heretical, you know, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Cause it's, you know, you, uh, I, I don't like terms like communicative capitalism, but I think it's important to like, you know, kind of see how like communication networks, like how fundamentally like important they are to, to not just like the mode of production, but like also just the entire social world that we inhabit. So the, the kind of the basic kind of bedrock of it. Uh, and yeah, so you do have these technocrats who, um, you know, whose whole existence is to regulate kind of the nature of the communication that's taking place in these circuits and in these channels, because that is, you know, the the tendency towards like dematerialization that, that is at the end of the day, what is the most important thing. Right. Yeah. If you could go into that uh, a little bit more, because I'm not too familiar with communicative capitalism but it seems to it sounds a little bit like jean Luc nancy and yeah and some of those kind of like mediologist theories maybe yeah Uh, i I think it's very like similar to like um like you you know it's like certain analysis like you alluded to earlier like the uh increasingly like interchangeable nature of um like material like commodities and like semiotic ones this whole right um language itself becoming this more and more like central focus uh the the increasingly central uh role that just like raw information plays and then you know as information itself becomes like a commodity you have these higher and higher requirements of like organizing and managing it and um you know yeah like i'm trying to think of like the best way to phrase it but i think that that's probably like the best way. And, you know, even like social media, I think would play into this. And so um, like in social media, like it is a vessel for the way that we communicate with one another, but it's simultaneously, you know, converted into the commodity as information or information as the commodity. And it's traded off to, you know, other corporations. And then it's fed back to us through, other channels to kind of profit further. So that's kind of what, like, it's, it's not a term, like, communicative capitalism isn't necessarily, like, how I would phrase it. Um, I, I've gotten more just because well, it could also be it. rephrased as communicative communism, because... Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say that, like, I, I have just more and more just started saying that, like, we live under socialism and not a capitalism. Um, 
because I think that the break that, you know, I was kind of talking earlier about like the collapse of the classical Marxist um, crisis theory, you know, like in, in a lot of ways kind of means that we no longer live under a properly like kind of capitalist regime either. And so in a ways like, you know, I, I, you know, I think in a very real way, you can make an argument that we live under socialism. Like you can call, you can preface it by calling it like a bourgeois socialism. I, I think today managerial socialism is a lot more accurate because I also think that like the classic bourgeoisie is declining as a ruling class and is kind of being replaced by a, by a managerial regime. Right. Yeah. And it also bourgeoisie is, it's more of a consciousness, you know, even like Mao talked mm-hmm. about this, you know, it's like, Oh, uh, for sure. For sure. You, you know, and not to say I'm a Maoist or anything like that, but, but it's almost like we live under this managerial sort of worldwide socialism. Well, this is kind of like why I feel like dem- democratic socialism is kind of like a moot point because it's like, Hey, you wouldn't even be elected democratically if you were. And meanwhile, it's like socialism's already here. So, like, what is it that <laughs> yeah. you're actually like? You know, this is my whole problem with like the left is they're into this whole thing of like. <laughs> it just sounds like ridiculous to me, uh, because th- there really is no commonality between that and sort of like anything. Uh, it just seems weird to me, you know, like why it's like, that's what the WF is doing. It's like, we're, we're under, it's like socialism with capital characteristics or something yeah. like that. I don't know. Well, I, I think that like both, like, you know, you mentioned Mao, I think he's actually like really kind of instructive here along with Marx and a lot of like thinkers in between, but it's like, you know, they really kind of highlight the ways in which, you know, they have this conceptualized, transition from like say capitalism to socialism and you know it was never like an instantaneous thing you know like it uh you would still like in in the critique of the gotha program like marx you know talks about how like bourgeois right will kind of persist at first because it's still kind of the society that is exerting an influence on the emergent you know social formations you have like talk about like co- co- the existence of commodities under the early forms of socialism. Or you even think about like a concept like the dictatorship of the proletariat. Like what, what does that mean exactly in Marxist theory? Well, the, the existence of a proletariat presupposes the existence of the bourgeoisie. So when you say like the dictatorship of the proletariat, that means that the bourgeoisie still exists. It's just not a ruling class. And so like th- these relations, you know, as in kind of like the classical Marxist lineage, you know, um, they don't go away. So it's very conceivable that, you know, they thought that under socialism at first, at least, you know, these like so-called like lower stages that you would see the persistence of kind of capital. But I think that it's the, the rise of a managerial system that kind of um, throws a wrench into things. It was kind of like a uh, unforeseen development in their theories. I, I don't think that it, it's like the history, you know, kind of follows their predictions to an extent, you know, cause it is, you know, they were studying tendencies and were making in, inferences from those tendencies, but now history is like going off on a different foot. You know, it's, it's a different path. Right. You know, it's, it's, 
that that brings up a really good point about the dictatorship of the proletariat. And we can re, we we have to kind of redefine what that looks like because a lot of like uh, Marxists are like the the Trump voter who's a farmer is a reactionary, and the Starbucks yeah. worker with the OnlyFans is the fucking real <laughs> proletariat. But yeah, yeah, it brings me back a little bit to. Eurocommunism and some of the Austrian Marxist school that was kind of like vying for uh, um, economic influence amongst like mm -hmm. Hayek and all of these other people. They they had a really really sort of like interesting take on things because they're like the bourgeoisie you'll never get rid of, but like our version of Marxism is they just have to ride the bus with everybody else. You know, it's like enforced public yeah. transportation <laughs> and like building out these like you know, mega sort of like Promethean, but like friendly and sort of wholesome systems that brought people together where it's like, no, actually you can be part of the quote unquote bourgeoisie, but you have to go to the same hospital as everybody else. And so the, like the early kind of like Euro communist model, I thought was really, really interesting uh, because it didn't like refute this idea that this is somebody who you just have to get rid of. And it's like, but it also didn't take away that like maybe a bit of bourgeois co like um, consciousness isn't something we have to like kill people over, you know, or right. like, entirely stamp out. So that, that was, I thought a, a pretty interesting thing that, you know, I, I was actually kind of reading about that the same time I was reading the the unconditional accelerationist stuff that you guys were all doing. So, oh, that's interesting. I, I, that's quite the juxtaposition, too. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. Yeah, and I, I guess it's interesting too because kind of like you know you talk about like you know the the fact that it was like we have to like kind of kill the bourgeoisie and stuff that you know really took took off in like the Soviet Union and in you know China under Mao. But like the fundamental difference between those places and say like Europe where like Euro communism took off is like that they weren't even like capitalist societies yet. They they were regarded as like the historical backwaters. Asiatic, so, agrarian, yeah. yeah. Asiatic modes of production. Yeah, totally. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's like perfect because it's like you know, the, the kind of, that's another deviation from your very kind of classical Marxist scheme, because it's like, you know, Marx always thought that capitalism would like emerge from these strong links of capital. Like, you know, it would happen in Europe and your most developed kind of centers. But then like the 20th century comes along and it's a completely different type of dynamic. Um, but at the same time, like, it also reveals something really interesting, I think, about like you, you referred to how the modern left, which are really just kind of like this managerial strata and training, how they kind of like turn their nose up at, say, like a Trump voter or a farmer in America or like, you know, one of the Dutch farmers or one of the truck drivers. But it's like those people would have been the people like that's the same type of people who were conducting these revolutions in Russia and China. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? Like those were kind of your classical model of like Bolshevik and Maoist revolutionaries. Yeah, it was like, a, it's like a MAGA chud, you know, like, yeah, no, exactly. Like, and so there's like an internet meme that's like, you know, MAGA is American Maoism. And it's like, haha, it's funny. And you know, it's kind of farcical, but it does have an element of truth to it. I think it's you know, very like, true.
<laughs> yeah, like I, I really do think that like populism in America, like it is basically American Maoism. Like if you look at like, you know, like the Cultural Revolution, it's like this like kind of horrifying thing that happened, you know, and even like modern China just really kind of they, they regard the Cultural Revolution as like an extreme excess. But if you like dig into the roots of like what started the Cultural Revolution, it was a mass like kind of populist uprising against what like a commun the Communist Party itself, which was seen as like too managerial and too technocratic and too Soviet, importantly. And so like even then it's like, I, I, I don't know, in the if you were just kind of like to switch the historical parameters around, like whose side would you know, like where where would your contemporary like American self-declared Maoist be? In those circumstances, I, I have a feeling that they would be on closer the to the yeah, they, <laughs> they'd be the, the targets. Of, <laughs> yeah, they'd be the targets of the Cultural Revolution, and so it's just like it's an irony of history. But I, I also I don't know like left and right are such just like empty yeah I don't even fires. believe in them. <laughs> no, no, I don't either. Like I, I think it is just an absolutely meaningless distinction at this point. Like. You know, like, what, what does it mean? You, it's just signaling, like, where you are with respect to, like, a, a managerial system, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. What would it look like outside of a managerial system? And it's also, like, left and right in the West means something incredibly different than mm -hmm. in the East, you know? Like, a lot of the things a Western leftist would view as far right is considered far left in China, you know, liberalism is considered reactionary in China. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a yeah. right, it's a rightist uh, tendency, uh, bourgeois like, you know, tendency. Like socialist parties in like Russia are like uh, as like culturally conservative, quote unquote, as you could ever like really possibly find. Like it's uh, way more really than the remarkable. Republican Party. It's it's yeah, uh, infinitely <laughs> more so. It, it's incredible, actually. Like. Yeah. Um, how how utterly inverted they they really are, and I don't know. It's a really good question. Um, what would like a, a non managerial society kind of like look like? I don't know if that could like really be answered like without you know because that that's kind of like uh, you know bu building utopias in a way. Right. Um, it's like we kind of have to figure out how to like get out of the place we're in before we can yeah. start to, uh, you know, get into like our little like HG Wells socialist utopian <laughs> fantasy world that definitely doesn't exist and is like a hundred percent fake, you know, like, and there's not yeah. much of a difference between like the cryptocurrency people and like the HG, like the kind of like Wellsian utopian kind of like soft, socialist stuff from like yeah back, like a fabian very, socialist mentality yeah yeah like the fabian society it's like very sort of like uh whimsical and immaterial and utopian it's just i feel like they had more of like they were operating more more under like the auspices of of like reason and you know scientific reason is where i feel like the new kind of technocrats do the same thing but they use the kind of like christian metaphysics to kind of like cover it up like i'm a tragic yeah cat, that's really big I'm in a... web three right yeah totally like, yeah yeah it's yeah. huge in web and web three you've done some amazing work into web three and you actually trip you made a connection between crypto ag in switzerland and 
promise software is oh, that I, I would have to go back and like look at the details because i actually don't remember like off the top of my head but like um yeah i was doing like a huge kind of like deep dive into like the promise software and kind of found like if you kind of track it forward you can start finding like lots of like commonalities like kind of people who are linked in weird ways to just like that kind of scandal you know and, and then you could kind of trace them forward and they'd start like popping up in crypto circles um so i don't have like all my notes in front of me but like no all good uh, yeah um uh, because I, I don't know, because like with Web3, I kind of feel like, because um, like I, I've only looked at like a small section of it and I feel like you're probably closer to like, you know, understanding it in a lot of ways, like in ways that I can't. Um, but would you say that like Web3, kind, kind of like the COVID crisis is a mechanism for like further upward transfers of wealth? Because like when I see crypto, especially like with this like latest crash, I just see like, kind of like mass expropriation of like small investors. Um, and it's hard for me to like see something like Urbit or another one of these like new platforms that's like not doing something similar. Any, any of these like web systems that promise autonomy in exchange for, you know, money. There's, there's uh, no autonomy there. Like the, yeah, you, yeah, you could that's... throw the autonomy. I, I feel like part of what I dislike so much about it is this idea that you have autonomy is that you have autonomy. And that mm -hmm. to me is like, you know, it's a strange, it's, it's really, really weird because, and speaking of promise software, I found out something fucking insane. You know about like Taylor Kramer, right? The guy who was off. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. the, he was the bass player of Iron Butterfly and he was a, he was a computing um, innovator and he was working on, this kind of like trans computing network that was like apparently like could go like make circles around space and like a Mobius strip and like all this other crazy shit. And he was offed, uh, but he was like, I'm, he called a suicide hotline on his way to LAX, which is by that mm -hmm. like weird um, building that spins around. It looks like a spaceship. <laughs> and they found his, well, I have a friend, I don't know if I want, I, I'm going to get in so much fucking trouble, but I found out <laughs> this girl who's his daughter, who's friends with an artist friend of mine. She's an art yeah. curator. She had, he had contact with Danny Casolero, who was the oh, main shit. beat on Inslaw during yeah. the late eighties. And he was found in a hotel room, mysteriously wrist slash. wrist slash the whole thing like blood everywhere which was clearly you know he was murdered you know there's a lot of yeah. weird murders surrounding that but i found out through a personal friend that they he was in contact with him so that God, makes that's, a, that's crazy. That makes a lot of sense because I have a friend. He's an artist guy. I don't want to get him in trouble, but he's like yeah, totally yeah. obsessed with Inslaw and Promise and all of that stuff. And just by chance, just happened to meet Taylor Kramer of Iron Butterflies. Fuck, I feel like but, horrible even saying this because I know there's something here, but I'm like, is this like too? Am I going? I don't know. Maybe I'm blowing <laughs> it out of proportion, but uh, no, th that's the thing is like promise is like a legitimately scary thing, you know, because so like, Danny scary. Kiss, like, 
Danny Kessler is like the most obvious example, but you're right. There's like a whole string of like, you know, bodies of people that like brushed up against it. Um, like P- Peter Dell Scott, who's like one of the most famous parapolitical researchers, like kind of famously wouldn't touch like the promise, you know, affair, like wouldn't research it because he was like so frightened of it. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the, the great secret. And, you know, like it fucking like connects up to like Epstein. It connects up to like Iran Contra. Yeah, you've you know, done some, fucking, you've done some stuff on that too. Like the connection between promise and Epstein. That is really, it's, yeah, it's the weirdest fucking thing I I've ever, you know, like, <laughs> I, like I, I tend to err on the side of like a lot of conspiracy theories are kind of like, you put it best, actually. You were like, you know, some of them, they don't really hold up because a lot of this stuff is just, it's like this sort of his, like leviathan of history churning away and it's just kind of like, you know, it's unthinking. It, it, But this is like really scary and for some reason, like the center of everything, like I just kind of go back to this. So yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> The connection to Epstein is like really fucking wild too. I mean, it's the perfect example um, because, like, you know, Epstein's like partner in crime, like Ghislaine Maxwell, her father was like Robert Maxwell, this like big British um, kind of newspaper tycoon, British raider or like corporate raider, all around like really bad fucking dude. And he was also like a spy for Mossad, but also had like contacts with like you know, British intelligence services, American and Soviet intelligence services. But when they like put the back door, like in the promise software and started like shopping it around the world, like selling it to like various um, intelligence agencies. So, you know, they could bug their systems. They used Robert Maxwell as like the main salesman for it. Like you can even like find traces of this in like his FBI files that have like been declassified. Like, you know, if you go to like Muckrock, you know, and you look up like the articles that they've done on Robert Maxwell, like analyzing his FBI files, they'll point out it's like, you know, there's stuff in the FBI files about him, like, you know, trying to like install these like bugged computer softwares at like fucking Los Almos and stuff. It's like, this is the father of the dude that like, you know, you know, just an incredibly like world historical figure that we're talking about here. Um, 
in, you know, like, um, and like, I, I don't know, I found some connections that like kind of been overlooked, you know, this is, don't want to go too far off this tangent. Cause we could like go for fucking hours about it. But uh, like one of the people in the Reagan administration that uh, was involved in the promise software was a guy named Earl Bryan. Like he kind of oversaw the, the bugging of this software for sale. Um, he's it, like, there is a person, I'm not going to say like who, you know, like, but he's in Jeffrey Epstein's black book and he is the attorney for Earl Bryan and Earl Bryan's company is listed in the black book, the contact book. And so it's like, you can directly tie Epstein to this shit. You know, it's not, you know, like I, I don't, I can't consider that a coincidence. It's too neat. It's too cozy. And it's, it's too weird. But I think that this actually does connect up with like what we're talking about, like these kind of like more macro scale kind of economic questions, because like what what is a concrete conspiracy? You know, these are class actors that are pursuing particular ends. You know, with the case of like Inslaw, you know, the, this promise software was installed in banks. Like that was one of the main things that they like really wanted to kind of transform it into as a means of tracking money. And so, you know, that control over like, you know, global capital flows, this was very important in that time period. Uh, you know, certain sur- sur- questions of surveillance and questions of, you know, central banking, monetary flows, et cetera, like they're all tightly woven together and, you know, becoming ever more so as time goes on. That's really interesting because, you know, for a while, I kind of dismissed the whole Epstein thing as a limited hangout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's almost like when you focus on the sort of like sexual scandal side, which to me is kind of like the limited hangout side, that's a lot less yeah. interesting than the financial stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so what you're talking about now, like this is when things get interesting and historical and they, you start to see like, whoa, 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 the, Whatever he was doing, I guess that might have like, you see, because what's more interesting to me is like, what kind of person engenders that type of perversion? And I'm I'm not saying it's like the worst thing in the world or anything. Like he was, he's definitely not like the worst pervert in history. But like, what was he doing? Like also. Because he had to be doing like worse shit, and you yeah. just kind of like answered that question. Because to me, this is like what's really interesting. Well, like I mean, they like go along like with, with what you're saying. Like, um, you know, like what, one of the things like in terms of his timeline, like that we know, it's very hard to piece together his um, like everything he did in the '80s, and it's becoming more clear, but it's still really difficult. But we know, like up to a point, he worked for Bear Stearns which is just crazy to think about. Um, He left Bear Stearns under kind of like cloudy circumstances, but he never actually like left. Like he left on paper, but we know from like kind of like offshore leaks, like the Panama Papers, that he actually continued to manage like offshore funds for Bear Stearns all the way up to the recession, actually. So there's like another little fun tie in there. Uh, that's what his real specialty was, is that he was like an expert at offshore finance mechanisms. Um, after he left, you know, quote unquote, left Bear Stearns, he went and worked for a man named Adnan Khashoggi. And Khashoggi was like the world's richest arms dealer. 
Like this was like a bad fucking dude. Like during Iran Contra, Khashoggi was like the middleman between the U.S., Israel, and Iran, and all those arms sales, and that actually corresponds perfectly in time. Wasn't he? When, from, like he was like Saudi, right? Yeah, yeah, he was okay. very tied up with Saudi intelligence services. Um, and so, and there's other people who have like pointed out that Epstein was involved in Middle Eastern arms sales at this time. And this is like a really big component that like people don't really think about too much. Like when you have these massive like arms sales packages, you know, these are illegal acts, but you're transferring like millions, sometimes the billions of dollars, you know, that it requires a vast banking infrastructure. So there's a very like, overlooked financial component to kind of like this shadow economy of arms dealing. And that's where Epstein was in this time period. But one of the things about Khashoggi is that he was also known to have employed like prostitutes and maybe have been involved actually himself in human trafficking. Um, he had like this yacht that he would like bring people on his yacht, like according to various like accounts was covered in like cameras and shit and hidden microphones. Like, and so he would use this to like entrap people, blackmail them or like otherwise influence business deals. Like this was a fundamental component of the way that Khashoggi did business. Well, it's like, well, Epstein, you know, fucking was working for Khashoggi. It's pretty clear, you know, like all that is exactly what Epstein would later do, you know, like it's, and so it's, you know, you have to realize like what's happening is that it's linked into this wider component, these like shadow economies, which are the real infrastructure of like the, you know, the official economy or however they want to, you know, call it, even though the shadow economy is as big, if not bigger than the above board economy, um, it's a very that's and that's another thing that's overlooked is like how important all this is to the actual everyday functioning of the system. Yeah, that's um, that's what I'm, that's kind of like what I'm thinking about right now is like what to what extent can people sort of feel the ramifications of this shadow economy? Because if you talk to someone like Curtis Yarvin or somebody like that, mm -hmm. they'll just be like, oh, you know, it's like. We have this, you know, we're, we don't think in terms of bureaucracy and we have this great big sort of like patchwork cybernetic bureaucracy that, yeah. uh, you know, is unthinking and it's, it, you know, the reason politicians are so dumb is because they don't have to be smart because they're just like the, ben they're, they're just like the beneficiaries of this big dumb thing. And it's funny because I actually like talked to him recently and like I don't agree with oh, him really? on, on anything. Yeah, I like saw him this weekend. And, you know, we talked about Plato and Plotinus a little bit, which is really funny. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of like how and this is something I do agree with him. And this is something L'Oreal talks about how for Plato, terror and philosophy are intertwined, you know, terror like domination and that's kind of like part of why that's another stupid tangent I, I don't have to go there but yeah it was it was like really really weird to see like how much agency certain people of certain like political or ideological backgrounds give to a like supposed system or set of systems like to me it's almost like I don't really I'm not like an economist you know what I mean like I don't really know that much about about it but i'm sort of like it, it to me it all just seems like really really weird and convenient and like 
the it, I'm like a great reset person. Like I totally think it's real kind of thing. Oh, dude, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely do. Like, um, I, I guess I haven't announced it yet, but like that's kind of like the you know what, what I'm working on. I actually I showed you the outline of yeah. it. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I totally, I absolutely think it's a thing, and um, you know, this kind of plays into I think the whole like. Um, we're, we're moving into a kind of socialism kind of mentality because my, my kind of take, you know, on the managerial strata, not to like cut off what you were saying, we can loop back around, but it's that, um, you know, managers are developing kind of like their own independent class consciousness. And when I say like managers, I mean like really kind of like high level, like, you know, a CEO is a manager, you know, um, and these are the people that make up like the Davos set. And so I see the World Economic Forum as them kind of starting to, for the first time, uh, exert their class interests as a, you know, a- as a class, again, you know, separate from like the bourgeoisie. And I, I see kind of the great reset as uh, the outward like political and social expression of that transformation. And they've given it like a whole like number of different names, like the Global Redesign Initiative. Um, I had a whole list. I wish I had it. I'll have to dig it back up. That's so crazy. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's funny too, because it kind of seems like every leader, you know, like sort of independent of Klaus Schwab, like Riley Wagaman has written about like Russia's own great reset. It's almost kind of like, uh, I, I love his writings. They're I do too. So He's great. But it's, yeah. it's almost kind of like the Cold War where in order to defeat the communists, quote unquote, like the United States basically had to render its own version of leftism or like yeah. a progressive society to basically like. So by the end of the Cold War, it was like, you know, Russia and China were like reactionary to whatever you the the affairs or the social affairs were of the united states mm-hmm. it's almost kind of like which is why i don't really like align with some of like the more pro putin uh tanky kind of takes on like xi jinping and stuff like that is because like i sort of just see them as like advancing their own version of that uh it's it's kind of similar what you see with like peter Thiel or like mold bug it's like they're like there's like bug world and pods and they're like advancing yeah. like the dissident version of get in the pod. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like eat the bugs, but di- you could say like certain edgy words or something like that. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's, yeah sorry. No, no, you're good. Yeah. I, I guess like um, my, my take is similar. Like I, it's kind of an open question for me because I, I think that there are, fundamental like world kind of shaking divergences totally. between like the, the u.s and china and russia like I, I think that they're moving in you know for for a while there was kind of like this um you know kind of like unified globalist moment you know like e- even like dugan will write about this with respect to putin you know because he has his like analysis of what he calls the two putins yeah um the there's like the liberal putin, putin and the, the uh, solar putin yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, China has its like liberals that like Xi has to like appease at times and suppress at other times. And so in a lot of ways, I kind of see it as like, you know, 
there are interlocks and interlaces where like these countries all kind of move in lockstep, but then there's like contradictions where they're pushed apart. And I don't think that they can necessarily be like boiled down to like particular individuals, if you know what I'm saying. Like, um, like I, I think maybe this is like a charitable reading of Dugan, you know, but like for me, I don't think that he considers like the lunar Putin and the solar Putin to like be conscious of their actions. It's like that, like kind of like um, different circumstances force a different dimension to manifest, I think. But like I said, that also might be charitable. <laughs> like That might be just how I want to read it. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it's almost kind of like to me, like not to sort of tie this back to like the great recession, but just on like a personal note, I think yeah. a lot of people feel like there's something they need to do. Like there's some sort of like discourse they need to engage in. There's some mm -hmm. sort of like question that they have to posit to a greater, you know, like, you know, stratum of society instead of just like, I don't know why, but to me, like, because of the sort of, the one thing I will say with like Marxism I really agree with is that it's a deterministic view of history. Like, right. and, and so there, there's a compatibility there with like recession maxing a little bit, you know, like you can grill and you can wait for the contradictions or the sort of like the spectacle or the overt crisis to arrive and sort of like shatter the, you know, it's like you can be aware of the kind of layers of simulacrum that we're engaging with right now and like right. pay attention to it, but you can also like chill out because ultimately it's like patience, right? You really have to look at these things like long-term. And I think the biggest problem and this is maybe where Trump is not like the Trump movement was not Marxist is it was not patient enough. It was, yeah, it was extremely like immediate yeah, um, and volunteerist. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah that, that's the perfect way to put it is, is the problem of volunteerism. And it's also, it's funny because like um, Alvin Goldner, who was like a really kind of like interesting sociologist. Uh, he has a book called the two Marxes where he goes through and he shows how there's like this conflict between like the deterministic marks and the volunteeristic marks, like at different points. Um, it's like, this is not something that's even recon reconciled in Marx himself. Like there's the Marx who has like the political program. And then there's the, the Marx who has like the long range kind of evolutionary view of like social development. And then there's the, one that, the like, Marx you're talking who, about. who claims like one man can change the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, I think that maybe some of these are actually reconciled in like really interesting ways, you know, because this is also like a problem that you find in Kant, you know, this oh, is, really? um, yeah, but this, I mean, what you're saying, like in the, in the volunteerism versus like an evolutionist perspective, that's, that's, um, the question of free will versus like causal determination, which is like a classic kind of like Kantian problematic. Right. And it's weird because, you know, like causal determination is almost because I'm not sure I even believe in causality. Like I might be that level of an idealist, but I do. Think, I love that though. But I do think 
the masses perceive causality. Therefore, they arrange their bodies around the phenomena or simulation of causality itself. You know what I mean? Okay, so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not like, so, you know, it's like, you, I love the idea of like Newtonian physics being like totally fake and made up. And oh, I dude, like, same. And I totally believe that actually, which is like. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I believe that like Darwin is just like absolute bullshit. So I yeah, get it. Yeah, I, I don't even believe in that. Like that's how yeah. anti-science I am in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, but, I am like, progressively just like, yeah, it's a bunch, yeah, genes, they're not real, like. KB, you know, he totally dinosaur pilled me. Like, I don't think dinosaurs existed. Yeah, I I saw him say that, but I didn't get I didn't get too deep into it. But yeah, I, I think that it's not so much that like it's his argument isn't that like you know something obviously existed, but it's when you actually like start digging into the lit, like the way that um you know people like reconstructed dinosaurs, which is I kind just of like don't making believe it up. a T-Rex's t- t- <laughs> arms are really that short. No, exactly. Exactly. Like, that's it's just, just like they weird just kind of like. <laughs> yeah, if you believe in evolution, how could you believe that that's happened? Like that is so impractical. Right, but that's almost yeah. why I like don't even know if I believe in Darwin because it's just like yeah, I just look at you know, and then there's the whole theory that the T Rex's arms are that short so that he can claw into his mate while he's like having sex. Like what? Yeah. So so. Like there's one evolutionary theory about the T-Rex that basically states that it's got these like little midget arms. And then somebody <laughs> also, then, then there's another uh, um, sort of like archeological like study that basically said, well, their arms were actually, they were, even though they were tiny, they were actually stronger than their legs, like kind of like an underwater praying like mantis or something. Cause you know how the underwater mantis, like when they, when they, swipe down they basically can break any human limb they're like that's i did not know that yeah which which is kind of like that is like an evolutionary weird thing for for whatever reason like i guess like per body mass it's like the strongest animal in the world like if it swipes it's like pincher down or whatever the fuck you call that thing it can like literally shatter limbs instantly or something like, like that. is it fighting off like sharks and stuff is yeah that i think so okay. it's like it like fights off sharks but it, like it could like like seriously fuck up a shark basically but it's kind of yeah, tight <laughs> yeah no it is it's super tight yeah but it's, yeah. it's like weird how that works but yeah you know and you're really into the whole like cornucopia thing and i brought that up it, yeah have, have you you've read candide by voltaire right I actually haven't. I have to confess that I read no. that years ago, and his whole is that thing cornucopia was, pilled? No, it's anti. It, it's the one where he takes uh, down Leibniz's whole argument. But I don't, you know, I don't agree with it. You know, like I read that book like fucking like twelve years ago. Like I hardly even remember it. But the whole thing was like anti Leibniz. But it's also just like you know, it's very like sort of a precursor to the French naturalists like Zola and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, against nature. So it, it was taking a sort of like more like naturalist approach to the world where it's about, you know, this young boy who's sort of like, you know, he's kind of Leibniz pilled by this, like, uh, by this chambermaid who's basically like ascribing all of the tenets of Leibniz when it comes to like the good life and the whole sort of like purpose of earth. 
mm-hmm. not purpose of earth, but you know how, um, you know, cultivating our garden and stuff like that. Yeah. And like then the, he the, like, the get, ends. yeah, but then he gets like progressively more black pilled as the book goes on. And just because more bad shit starts happening to his life or something like that. But it's weird, you know, because I square this up because there's so many strange synchronicities in my life of shit that like should not have happened. But like I dreamed it into reality. Like what's a good example? Bands I've played with that I like really liked when I was young, you know, like to so to me, it's almost like there has to be this like predeterminate god structure to the world or something like that that kind of like renders something like causality totally yeah like irrelevant you know what i mean so i'm kind of like protestant like german like romantic. A, almost calvin calvinist mm, it they're too hateful for me they are hateful they're extremely hateful i'm referring to like um you know that they, they don't leave much room for like causality in their frameworks. None. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're basically but, like, they look at a kid from when they're like a year old and they're like, the look on your face, you're predetermined to go to hell. Yeah. But that, like, even like, like, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. What are you saying? No, no. I was just like, I was thinking like, even in like Deleuze, like or in like a thousand plateaus, they've got like really weird notions of, um, causality that i don't think i've ever really seen commented on like they explicitly talk about like retro causality and stuff like that oddly enough like in reference to the formation of the state um do do you know the part i'm talking about i don't remember that part it's been it's been like a while so i'm gonna pull it up just because let's see that's so crazy yeah retro causality what is that like yeah I'm, I'm trying to control F retro causality and it does not appear in this PDF. Um, so I could be totally making this up. <laughs> I don't know where to find it. Well, you know, find it. I would put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny because so when I think about like determinism, this is why I love antiques and exotica. And I've been like listening to Bruce hack and just kind of like nice. chilling out <sighs> by the river, it, it, you know, like, there is a kind of like patience and you know, like it's a refusal of the kind of like mass of terrorism that we see today. And, you know, Baudrillard calls this, he calls it the baptism of the social where people are like terrorism arises when people refuse the baptism of the social itself. And, and, you know, and I, I find that to be like a really sort of interesting Way, you know, and it's weird because he's like a geographer too, in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And he talks so much about, you know, obviously he's like very critical of like socialism. And I feel like he'd be like very pissed off at like the world economic firm. But to me, it's like, I'm almost just like, what is an Ed Berg? Because you're a chill ass guy. Like, what does an Ed Berg recession max look like for you? Okay. Uh, let's see. Because. Um, it is simple living. Like I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was like, you know, what, what are some key things that people should be able to do in a recession? And I think a lot of it revolves around cultivating, like, you know, t- types of practical knowledge. Like, um, for example, I don't know. I, I think that everybody should have should know how to replace like a socket in the wall. Like, you should have totally. very they 
you know, you should know how to do that. You should know how to like maybe fix a leaking pipe. And it's not saying like, you know, you don't need to know how to like redo, you know, electrical systems or plumbing systems in your house, but you should be able to like do the very basic shit. Like if you're a car owner, you know, you need to know like the basic shit for that. Like you need to know how to like change the oil, change, you know, fucking tires, even get up into like brake pads and stuff like that. If you don't own a car, I think you should buy a car. It's, it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice to be a, be a car owner. Like your car pill. Yeah. I'm extremely car pill, like to, to, to the max, like and ever more. So, um, I'm just, yeah, I, I really want to buy a, an eighties BMW. Like, Oh, they're like, so cool. There's this yeah, one I, oh, right by me. It's like the, it's a three twenty I one of those like little oh, tiny shit. ones. Those, yeah. those coops. It's like crazy oh. how nice it is. My my, I love old cars. I mean, I'm so sad that I had to sell my Tercel because cash for clunkers was basically just, you know, it destroyed <laughs> like the junkyard, the salvage industry to where you can actually like find. Decent- yeah, talk about a fucking nightmare. Like, oh, the worst. I mean, I I can't even believe that. It just, you know. Like an '86 Tercel could last so fucking long. It's just cr- like cars these days are just complete shit compared. They, to and what, they look bad too. Oh, they, <laughs> look, they look like eggs, is where they used to look like these cool little like, uh, you know, I don't know what they looked like rollerblades or something. Like they uh, look like little roller skates, like rolling around. Yeah. There's nothing I, I'm not I, sure. I like more than like an old Toyota, you know, from the 1980s. Like a oh, Gen yeah. 2 Camry or a it, they're so cool. And and it's crazy to me that like I like to me one of the biggest problems is like because they're they're sort of like purposely I think there's a real agenda to make DIY uh, obsolete. So, oh, like, dude, I wanted to mention this actually. Okay, yeah, let's go yeah. into this. Yeah, no, no, it's just because it's something I've been thinking about with like, um, because like they're they're opening this massive, massive like electrical uh, battery plant here in Kentucky, um, and it's you know it's supposed to be like this huge boom for the state. I'm not knocking it. Like it's gonna add a lot of good paying jobs, and Kentucky is notoriously poor state. Like it, it needs it. Um, but just like thinking about like what, what does the like you know the, the kind of like regime of electrical vehicles look like you know um, I think one of the most important things about an automobile especially these older models that we're talking about is like how easily they can be worked on like the BMW is like I, I don't know like what those like autistic like German like engineers were doing because it's like a, it's like a Lego car like everything could snap apart snap back together like the more Same with modern. Toyotas. Yeah, it's yeah, insane. Like, like the, you, you, you. In order to change the valve seals, you don't even have to take out the head of the engine. All you have to do is remove the camshaft. It's just like it's yeah. that easy. Oh yeah, yeah, and like I, I know, like the newer BMWs kind of like lost that um, capacity. So like, it's not even like a you know like by the nineties it was even starting to kind of fade a little bit. But they you know kind of kept it going in certain quarters. But with like electric vehicles, you kind of have this, um, you know, IP, like intellectual property becomes like so focused on it. 
and they make it so difficult for you to be able to do work on these cars like yourself like you have to take it to specialists and those specialists aren't like general specialists they're going to be specialists that work for the specific company of the car so you know like that's a threat not only to like your diy capabilities but also to you know your local mechanics and you know this impacts a whole production system of knowledge itself that does get kind of handed down like that is social knowledge that is a threat there and you don't just see it in automobiles like you see it uh this is a huge problem in like um like in farming you know the you know newer yeah, and newer ag- tractors yeah, in agriculture like, it's crazy yeah like agriculture, that's kind of like the, the original model of this, you know, like locking farmers out of being able to work on their own tractors. I think that there is a very deliberate effort to kind of make that a generalized model for everything. And, you know, it goes back to like, you know, the World Economic Forum, you know, the whole like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, you know, which is like the most insidious thing that anybody's ever uttered like in history. Uh, but you if you can't work on it yourself, if you can't modify it, um, like how, how do you own it in any kind of meaningful sense? Like really you're just renting it from these companies. So it fits like an even wider kind of like trend that was happening, which is like the liquidation of ownership itself. And it's kind of transference into a like all encompassing generic model of rentierism, I think. Yeah. It, would you say that rentierism, though? I well, that's actually what what makes it so insidiously socialist, right? Because it's not, yeah, in a way, yeah. because it's not actually like communally owned. It's not individually owned. It's like bureaucratically owned and laundered through this weird, um, shitty sort of like world socialist. Uh, network that is like completely designed to make it so that you have no autonomous subject to object relation to anything right, anymore. Yeah. And and I I mean like I was a repair person like I repaired guitar amps forever and I would work on I would service you know like old Fender twin reverbs like I would mod Silverface ones to be blackface and I, I there was like a million things that I used to be able to do. Um, and my business just kind of like had to shut down during COVID, you know, like I did that for 10 years, basically. Oh shit! And during COVID, there was this explosion of digital amp modeling using shark ISP processors, which are very, very powerful. Actually, it's like having a computer and a guitar pedal that can simulate you know, an amp. And in one way, like they actually sound really good. That's um, really interesting. But I noticed during this period that my, which is why I became a podcaster. I'm not knocking it because I actually like, like what I do now too. But there is a kind of stress because it puts a, you know, like it puts a cultural pressure on you in a weird way. And it puts an algorithmic pressure on you. And so no longer are you even like, um, when you get into this whole sort of like multimodal internet type research project stuff, like you're not necessarily like, you know, you're kind of like a master and slave within your own domain. Like Hegel says, is you know, it's like handing the the slave the 
the whip so that he can whip himself and call himself master. That's kind of what the attention economy and the internet economy does to people. And, and so like I had this kind of like pastoral relationship to these like old, you know, uh, closed transistor, you know, like I would work on closed transistor stuff like fuzz pedals and I build stuff and then, you mm-hmm. know, like, but my whole life revolved around like, going to the pawn shop in the valley and talking to my old bald headed friends and then like coming home and repairing their shit and then selling it basically and modifying it. And I just noticed that that vocation that I had for a decade, like Mm -hmm. became impossible during COVID right as they started talking about like the great reset. I find it like, I find it like a little, uh, like, convenient that those things lined up or something no like it's like would you like dig into like that is what the great reset is about like um if you really kind of track the idea of the great reset like it originates with like the world economic forums like hardcore focus on what they call the fourth industrial revolution um and they kind of frame it in this like you know very kind of utopic you know, you know, kind of neo hippie kind of way where it's like, you know, there's all these emerging technologies and we got to, you know, make sure that it's good for everybody, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I, the way that I kind of read it is like, you know, you have like, you know, coming from a Marxist background, like technological revolutions are like driven by contradictions within the system. Right. Right. I, the way that I read the, you know, the, the World Economic Forum statements is that they want to kind of control the emergent technological systems. Because um, I don't think that, you know, it's nest- they're operating from like a position of strength. You know, I think that there is lots of crises that are compounding. So for them, it becomes like, you know, an exercising control over the outcomes of it. So I don't think that there's like uh, necessarily like a teleological destination of like, you know, uh, current systems to like kind of go off into this like weird you know rent model this like elimination of local systems i think that there's probably like an entirely different way that we could be articulating um these systems and the world economic forum you know they they want to control that outcome and a really good example of that is like their focus on 3d printing uh because for them it's like retooling existing structures of production to like use 3d printers like basically make the 3d printer the next apparatus of mass production but it's like you you know but what are the radical possibilities with a 3d printer you know um what what are what what could like a home shop you know do with it instead like could, could you relocalize economies based on these sort of things but it's like that's not what the world economic forum wants to happen like they want the exact opposite thing to happen And so I just, I think it's a game of controlling outcomes, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Because like part of my interest in cryptography is like how it could lend itself to 3D printing. Because like I said, and I'm not just talking about like guns or anything, even though I think that's cool too. Um, Yeah, it's cool as hell. Like, yeah, I mean, like I have 3D printed gun, like whatever, you know? Well, I'm in Texas. It's legal here. It wasn't when I lived. Yeah, you got to have one in Texas. Yeah, 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 for sure. But it's, it's funny though, because like that was something that I was thinking, but like how would they regulate 
the outcome of 3D printing that could, because like, for example, like on my 86 Tercel, I had to sell it because an output cooling valve like huh. basically disintegrated over time because of the water mixture and the coolant. And it was just an outlet hose. Like it had like two spouts and it literally just like it developed light leaks, which rendered the car useless because they don't make those uh, anymore. Like they don't make those anymore. A yeah. And B um, you can't find them at the junkyard because of cash for clunkers because they were all crushed. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, and because they just decided they don't want any cute 86 Tercels on the road anymore because of like some weird, bizarre Malthusian idea they have about like old cars, which I, I don't really agree with. You know, it's like, just let the people have fun with their old fucking car. You don't have to. Yeah. No, like, no, I definitely agree. I, I had a comparable because I, I drive a like a 2003 Ford Ranger. Like it's a oh, piece nice. of shit, but I love it. Yeah, it, it's sick. But um, I recently had like a vacuum leak that I couldn't fix because like the part couldn't be replaced. Um, but I have like a friend who is like an airplane mechanic and he like fucking made up a, a part like welded a piece like an entirely new thing and like put it in there and it works perfectly fine um so there's like little strange workarounds but it was definitely something that i personally could like never have done and never would have like dreamed like i thought it was the end of the road for the truck really so on a 2003 that's crazy yeah. so they're yeah just, it's they're just like making parts obsolete even that's that's less than 20 years old. That's crazy. Yeah, like I looked and looked for like, it, it was a really weird kind of thing. And I guess like technically I could have replaced it, but it would have been such like an extensive overhaul that like versus like, you know, what you pay for the, the vehicle, you know, it would have kind of rendered right. it redundant. Yeah. That's interesting. But I, yeah. I, I think though, like kind of like to go back to your, what you were saying about like how would they kind of control that outcome like one kind of like really interesting example is that like this isn't really the technically the first time that this has happened like um the like invention and kind of generalization of like the electric motor instead of like a um like a steam powered like coal system in production definitely kind of decentralized production a lot because you didn't have like a lot of the necessities that like the coal furnace enforced on it. And so there was a lot of people, you know, that really thought that there would be this kind of return to like home industry because everybody would have these like small workshops and little electrical motors and they could, um, you know, just do production from there. It's very similar to how like people thought that 3D printing was going to go. But like what ended up happening is it kind of kept the framework, you know, the big scale production that like the coal system produced and just kind of like fit the electrical motor into that framework. And a lot of ways that this was done is like, you know, it was made cost effective to do it that way through like state subsidies for like massive companies or like tax breaks. And so, you know, like, uh, you know, the automobile industry is actually a really good example of this, which, um, you know, the state paid for the highway system, which was like the biggest boon to like um, 
any private company that you could possibly get. But then you also see it, you know, further downstream, like mass production requires like mass consumer outlets. And so you start getting, you know, like stores like Walmart and it's like, well, Walmart actually like pays its employees like below like subsistence wages. And if they had to, that would like trickle up the stream and everything would start to cost more. But the state through welfare kind of subsidizes those low costs. And so it's like you have an entire system that encompasses the state and the large, you know, companies, et cetera, that kind of like slants the whole thing against like this kind of decentralization of production. Uh, and I think really kind of just chokes it off. That's you know, a good it's like point. kind of yeah. Yeah, it's like corporate um, socialism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like uh are you familiar with like Kevin Carson? Like he uh No. He, he wrote a he wrote a really interesting book on this called the um let me look real quick. It's the uh Oh, it's it's the Homebrew Industrial Revolution. Um and like kind of his whole argument is about this exact issue. And so like I I find it to be a really fascinating book even though don't necessarily like agree with a lot of his like conclusions or his like political stances, but I think his raw kind of analysis of that situation is spot on. That's interesting because like one of the things that I'm actually seeing is kind of like kitschy, uh, almost like insulting return to like tinker toy set, uh, like mass produced hobbyism. So like take for example, um, they don't make, the items to fix old things, but they'll basically do is like, you know, harvest, uh, you know, well, now it's actually just getting more and more difficult to, to manufacture transistors and stuff like that, because there's, mm -hmm. there's like a massive, um, uh, supply chain issue, especially when it comes to germanium. Uh, so like even in, you know, in, chips and stuff like that but there was this like sort of like boom of like let's not make the old things anymore let's sort of tinker with the resistance of a thing so that you can build it yourself but you can't build it like the thing that came before it and it's generally mm. not as good but so it's it's kind of weird like you're starting to see this whole new industry crop up of like DIY it's like do it yourself but like on our terms like you can't yeah. just have you just you can't just like slot the parts from our thing into the old thing because the tolerances are not compatible but we're going to create a similar circuit based on this new um uh I guess like amenable production standards that are cheaper and create you know surplus value for us rather than so i find it like weird like the whole like new like diy tinker thing yeah versus like that seems to be sort of like a backhanded cut like um like fuck you here's what you get instead kind of thing i don't know if that makes it, sense no it makes perfect sense it, it also kind of makes me think of like Baudrillard's procession of the simulacra, you know, because it's yeah. like this, you know, it, it's a return, you know, you have this system that is absolutely annihilating the, you know, conditions for the existence of a, DIY, a true DIY culture, but then like DIY culture like returns, but in this like, you know, not, not even in a direct simulation, but this kind of, 
you know, simulation of a simulation, this very reductive, you know, vacuum sealed kind of form. Uh, I I do know what you're talking about. Like I, you know, um, I haven't done it in a while, but like it was got, you know, got into like brewing beer and that's a good example because now you see like kind of weirdo like brew kits and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's almost like do it yourself became this catch-all meta narrative that needed to be destroyed or something like that in order to, you know, create a new industry. Yeah, no, it's funny. Like I think of DIY stuff and to me, it's like, I, I just love fixing things. That's my favorite thing in the world. I could totally just like zone out and zen out. And that like, that's kind of when I'm most at peace is what is when I have like a minor issue and I can fix it, you know, and I can go to the store and get the parts and like actually like do some research. And it's, you know, and it it was like really cool because at a certain point, like, you know, wow, the internet wasn't totally evil and satanic because you had YouTube tutorials and, and you actually had the parts to fix this. So now it's almost kind of like, I'm like restructuring my life to like, only own cheap things that I can still fix just so that I can like play out the sensation of repairing something and it also being cheaper in the long run. So I think almost like the solution is like you have to find the things. The thing that I don't like is they're generally more generic and like less exotic than what I would like to own Mm -hmm. per se. But I'm just sort of like just on a utilitarian level. I think that's, kind of like my best that's that's just like a personal trend that i've been experiencing yeah no i'm definitely like the same way um maybe like i'm not necessarily like the most well-rounded when it comes to like fixing stuff uh but i definitely kind of prefer it to the alternative so everything that i buy is yeah like kind of older or secondhand uh, you know the the automobile it's always going to be an ancient one, you know, um, it's just the way that it's going to be also because like, you know, don't make too, too much terrible, like not the wealthiest guy around. So it's like, you, you got to make do with what you have. Um, and so it's interesting because it's like simultaneously people get deprived of what they have, but also the means to maintain what they have simultaneously. Uh, and, yeah, YouTube is like another good example of like a changing place because like I, I find YouTube like harder and harder to find a lot of the like really good tutorials and stuff like that when it comes to just like basic fix-its. I don't know if you've experienced that at all. I definitely have. I, I mean, yeah. th- there also used to be like a wealth and there still is, but they're like, you know, a lot of these books on how to repair things, like they're just going out of, print basically you know like yeah it's it's really interesting like i used to have a tascam 388 which was the big reel to reel that looked like a cassette deck but it was eight inch tape uh oh that's awesome yeah that's kind of what like a lot of the garage rock records were made Mm -hmm. on and i had one and there was like one guy left in america who could work on tascam transports of that particular model and he was this 84 year old hungarian man who lived in the valley adrian pro audio and he was like super like sort of like salty and cold and but he was imported 
to work at the Tascam factory, which is in, um, I think, I don't think it's in Vernon. Vernon is where I, is actually where I worked at a guitar amp company. Um, mm. as I was doing all their technical stuff, uh, there, but it was somewhere South of Los Angeles and I've seen the building and it's, it's so crazy because like I asked him as like, can I be your apprentice? Like this knowledge is going to die with you. And he was like, yeah, he just was like, no, I prefer to work alone. And I was like, <laughs> "Fuck, oh man. Oh man. So, so is he still living or is he, has he passed on? I think he, I mean, the business is still open. I don't live in LA anymore. I moved a year and a half ago, but, but you know, it's, so to me, it's like, that's when I got really into repairing stuff was last recession. Like that was Mm -hmm. when I learned basic electronics and just like really practical stuff. And I'm just like, you know, I'm finding myself more and more just like tinkering again, you know? And it also, I noticed during a recession, you have to deal with more broken things. Like people are selling things that are broken that need fixing. Like I got this DJ controller and I ended up getting it for free, but it had a broken fader on one of the channels. And I went in and I ordered the part and I just soldered it in. And it was like just so much fun not to get off. I want to get back to the the rest of the stuff you have to say about uh, recession maxing. Oh no! I, th- this all like falls exactly under like the uh, the criteria I think of recession maxing because I like I'm of the same opinion that we're like practical knowledge and you know just generalized know how is important in these times. It also like it's funny that you like mention uh, like selling stuff because like one thing that I picked up um, you know during the last recession and which I kept doing really heavily until shortly before the pandemic was actually like flipping stuff. Like I got like crazy into, you know, going to like yard sales or just like, just anything. Like people don't even realize the stuff that's just like laying around that you can just like pick out and you can, it's of value to somebody and you can just put it out there. You can make money that way. This is a very quick and easy form of making money. So I think that's another like, um, kind of, uh, Good, good trick. Maybe it's just like, you know, maybe just kind of like cultivate like kind of scumbag techniques like that. Cause it is kind of scuzzy, you know, I don't, don't want to say too, too much, but you know, just, uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. Be- become mi- mildly petty bourgeois when it comes to, <laughs> to reselling things. I, think, um, I so, don't know. I think that's a very sort of like, at least today, it's like a very blue collar vocation. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I was definitely, yeah. I, I had a, a very like, um, when, when I worked in that like novelty warehouse, it was like the, the warehouse manager. He had like, oh God, he had so many kids with like different people. Um, and, you know, it didn't make that much, you know, we're working in like this small business that was failing. And so, you know, he would just like had just like the the zaniest like schemes and like ways that he made money. He was just perpetually like had every everything figured out. Everything had this like incredible little angle to it. And I don't know that that was like a huge kind of like influence on me. And when I think of like recession maxing, like that's what it's about right there. Is because you know his whole life was basically a recession, um, and he 
like he pointed out, he's like, I've never gone hungry. None of my kids have ever gone hungry. Um, and yeah, that, that right there, I think was it. That's a, that like, you know, it's interesting because the great recession, I think had, you know, you, you talk about like the depression generation, how like, you know, how people who, you know, like between the depression and world war two, like my grandparents, like it made them like, sort of like very sort of like, like resilient and, you know, would go out and fix stuff and do all that. Like, I feel like, you know, exiting the house and like playing in bands and being like really young during that period, that was probably like had the biggest, um, impact on the way I at least like relate to stuff. Like I've always fixed tons of stuff. Um, I always had like tons of weird little hustles and like, uh, you know, everything from like decorative painting to just like weird jobs, you know, like, and it, I've never <laughs> really had like a career and I just kind of like stuck in that. I've just been in perma Yeah, exactly. Like perma recession for the past, yes. like 15, 16 years of my life. And it's, it's totally interesting to see like the psychological imprint it had on me and i guess you too like it sounds like we're very oh yeah kind of similar in that no it sounds identical to me i I, i've never heard anybody else like articulate it in this way because it is the same because like i I don't get rid of stuff but i also like don't buy much stuff like it's like i you know i i and i also like i don't have like a career i dropped out of college you know um (laughs) and so it's just like yeah which that all kind of corresponded simultaneously and so it's just been, yeah, I, I feel like it was a series of really valuable kind of lessons. And, it, but also I don't, you know, I don't want to think of it as like drudgery. I think that's a really important perspective. Cause like, I don't know, kind of, kind of thrived in the, in the recession, honestly. Yeah, I did too. I I've been, you know, it's like you thrive in different ways though. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I feel like when everybody else is kind of like, oh, I have to give up my like thing that I like that I really wanted, but I can't have. And it's usually some like, it's usually, sometimes it's like an idea or an ideal that becomes like imprinted into your brain through, I think, uh, very abusive public sort of schooling and academia, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm just very against like school, public school. I just think it's like torture in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. I'm of the opinion that like, schooling itself is yeah it's it's awful yeah same and and it's it's really weird because i just remember like oh man like i had so much fun during that time you know and it's just but it's a lot of work like most people like i don't know if it's like a a consciousness thing like do people sort of just need to like awaken this kind of like diy consciousness and be like Oh, this thing that you want that's new and shiny, you actually don't need to have that. And I, I, you know, like around that, the recession was like kind of the same time I was getting interested in like Marxism and philosophy mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like I never really identified as like left or right or anything like that. I never, like, I never even saw Marxism as like leftist. Like, I always thought leftists were like, the shitty anarcho kids on the street, like 
you know, playing like crust punk songs and, you know, yeah. and, uh, talking about like, you know, like that's what I always thought like a leftist yeah. was, you know, or something like that. I, it was like, it's, <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about, cause like you, you've been tweeting about re- reading like anarchist pamphlets. And I, I was wondering I've been doing that like, for fun because I've, I've like yeah. awakened myself to this like whole side of the internet. That's like, uh, Stir, like Max Sterner, egoist, vegan, uh, post civ, but simultaneously anti gender. Uh, yeah, which is weird like kind of because Mal- I feel Malthusian. like a lot of the, yeah, like Malthusian, uh, like pro, like acting, like throwing ball, like just like this weird side of like anarchy, which I think is like idiotic. And I think it's mm-hmm. like, because first off, it's like the funny thing about anarchy is like when you're talking about something like veganism or you're, you're making a universal qualification that needs like a collective effort in order to uphold while simultaneously like prioritizing the particular or the self or the ego or the individual over that. And they also like really hate Marxism and all yeah. forms of leftism, which I find like really, really, it's, it's like, well, that's like who like post left, like originally referred to, exactly. which is really funny was, to me. Yeah. yeah. Anarch, like John Zerzan or something like that was like a post left anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these people were like, kind of like, kind of like American situationist who just like kept taking it like further and further to the point where it's like, you know, like John Zerzan, I think it, like he's famously like, we have to get rid of language. We have to get rid of like symbolic thoughts. Like, like, right? like, like, didn't that guy yeah. from like uh Hakeem Bay, didn't he just die or something like that? He just died like really recently. Like, yeah. 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 Like he died really recently. And I kept seeing like all this stuff on Twitter, you know, like, Oh, rest in peace. Like Hakeem Bay is like, dude like wrote so much about like how he wanted to like fuck little kids and stuff like what, why are you like putting this guy like up on this crazy pedestal like, and it wasn't not just a good like dude. hebophilia it was like straight up like little kids <laughs> yeah like like little boys like particularly yeah, yeah like, it's like oh it's like it's sacred pederasty or something yeah like dude come on you know yeah like, it, like <laughs> it's fucked up it's so weird it's like so you want to destroy capitalism but you're the, your entire framework is like so bourgeois. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. why? Because you take less showers that somehow makes you less. Like, you see, I, that's kind of what I'm talking about with like the consciousness element. It's like, sure, like the, the, so, the social and cultural signifiers, okay, you're a smelly, dirty anarchist, like whatever. You take hormones or I don't fucking know and you, you, claim to be against the system but you know Ernst Jünger who's one of my probably my favorite thinker of the right and I don't actually you know it's funny like I haven't really read that many right wing thinkers per se uh, yeah I'm, I'm a big fan too I, I think he's fantastic I yeah same and I think he transcends that label he's kind of post yeah I almost don't really think of him as like no, a, no. A, yeah. yeah a conservative yeah. for sure but not necessarily like right wing I don't even think he's a conservative. You know that whole thing, how he was one of the first, he coined the term psychonaut. He was one of the first oh, I didn't people know that. to take LSD. 
Yeah, I did know that. I didn't know he came up with Psychonaut. He coined the term Psychonaut. And there are these amazing interviews. Like, what do you think of con- in a in the documentary about him? He's like, what do you think of computers? And he was like, oh, like uh, taking drugs is much better than any computer. <laughs> and I is and it, like, so he was into mind expansion. But in his like later stuff, like Umsvile, he you know he makes like very compassionate cases for like plural societies, and mm-hmm. you know he definitely you know. He was an anti-racist, but because he was so right-wing, he thought it was like unaristocratic to be racist or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me kind of like Dugan's, like the way that he breaks with racism. Like, well, it's funny because people like, think Dugan is like a racist fascist, but he's like totally woke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, what's his critique is like that, like liberalism just simply liberalism is too racist. Like that's yeah. like really like the basis. And so like it's like the only like the fourth political theory is the only thing that can realize a truly unracist society. I think it's a really beautiful line of argumentation. Yeah, it, it actually is. And, you know, I'm not like a total Dugan apologist. I've I've I'm fascinated with him, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm he, not either. I just I like reading him. I think he's I think he's fun to think with. Totally, super fun, and he's super easy to to think with. But you know, people say you know Heidegger isn't a thinker of marginality, and that's completely untrue. And a lot of weirdly Dugan's claims coming from like when he starts to sound like a woke SJW actually <laughs> sort of come from. Uh, Heidegger's assertion that like Western technology is inherently cultural and it has a Western bourgeois imposition that it exports to the rest of the world. So when he talks about like the great reset being racist, um, he's basically saying that it's a Western imperialist epistemological technology that is then being imposed upon the east therefore you know he makes a similar sort of like assertion that uh, david columbia who's a, who's a fucking idiot made when he claimed the blockchain yeah. <laughs> is racist or something like that except uh, the blockchain isn't racist the blockchain is just idiotic you know what i mean it's, yeah it's just a techni- it's a technocrats tool yeah it's a technocrats tool but in the case of like the great reset the way he ties it to race i think he makes a good point you know like i i agree so yeah <laughs> he's got this like uh this might be slightly off topic but i very recently read his um like what is like theory theory of a multipolar world i think it's called and so like you see this like critique from the right or from the left a lot where it's like oh dugan's like a fascist like he believes in borders etc cetera, etc cetera. like you know like super strong borders but then like in this book He's like, oh, no, there will be no borders between civilizations. There will be hybrid zones where new and strange things can emerge. And, like, you know, he kind of has this, like, idea of, like, these civilizations. And then there'll just be, like, large swaths where, like, hybrids of these two civilizations will take place. And you'll be like, there will be pirate societies and vagabonds. (laughs) And it's just, like, this, like, hilarious kind of picture. You know, it's, like, it's not at all what people think it is. Yeah, well, I think Dugan theoretically is sort of different than like the way he's either represents himself politically 
you know, mm-hmm. because he actually says, he's like, you must read Deleuze, you know, everyone needs to read Deleuze kind of thing. You know, he, he, t- yeah. he says stuff like that. And you see it with some of his more like patchwork theory, uh, political theory stuff, it, you know, but now it is really funny. And he, well, he actually wants like sort of open borders within a civilizational structure. And yeah, then he talks sure. about those, like those sort of like ephemeral temporary zones of like yeah. piracy and it just gets like really weird. And I think and, that's and it's like, almost be- like romantic. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's, that's actually exactly what I want to live in, you know, like that's it right there. Yeah. Like a, uh, a like a non anarchist chop or something like that, or just, yeah. Yeah. Or a I, desert I, I Island. So. I just, yeah. Perfect. Bringing it full circle. That's what it is. Yeah. It's yeah, just a deserted island. But yeah, so I'm just so into like exotica music now and like fixing shit and it's 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 beautiful. I we've been going for a while. I don't know what time you have, have to go. Um well I should probably have to head out here. My um my sister and my cousin or not my cousin, my nephew are over here. I think they've like, they pulled up like 15 minutes ago and been waiting for me. Um, but like, it's no, it's no big deal. I told them that I was recording, but like, um, yeah, we can go a while. We can cut it off here. But like, I don't know if you want to continue this conversation sometime, like, you know, I would love to do this again if you want to. Yeah. I mean, if you want to wrap up and say anything else, cause I feel like, uh, you know, like, I kind of wanted to touch on like Americana a little bit yeah. and like America and, and sort of uh, how it's almost hard because we went to, you know, I just, yeah, I've been thinking about Baudrillard's America and what brought me back to that was the, the America bot account on Twitter that just retweets quotes. And I'm like, you know what? This is so amazing to me. Because Which it, bot is that? You know, like uh, Baudrillard's America. It's a Twitter account. Oh, just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a yeah, wonderful account. Yeah, and and so I think about America and its foundation is like radically out of the box um, refutation of the kind of like you know uh, the systems of Europe. I don't know yeah. if you have a better word, like the royalist sort of ethos of Europe. And, it, you know, like America is still something that's really beautiful to me. And even my Mexican, some of my friends who are from Mexico, like I had these guys Nudo on. One of them I think you're mutuals with on Twitter, and he's a big fan of what you do and stuff like that. But Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and This was the the band, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I listened to the interview. That was a great interview. Yeah, but we're we're all like super like Americana pilled in a weird way. Yeah, I am too. Like, like I I'm always you know I, I follow like a million different like bot accounts on Twitter that are just like pictures of American buildings and like yeah like uh, roadside mid, America. Modern. Yeah, yeah, I've had this like whole kind of like theory that like I don't know I've never really developed it, but like. Um, you know, uh, the, the closest like evidence we've ever come to like a concrete like instantiation of communism in America is actually like American roadside attractions, and that it's like these it's, it's like we we it is kitsch 
It's like these like pieces of the future that like fell out and just kind of dotted the American landscape. Uh, and I, I think that there's a really kind of fundamental connection between American and surrealism that sort of informs that. Uh, uh. There is like, actually like a group out of Chicago that was called the American Surrealists. Uh, and they, they had this term for like what America had. They called it like it's, it's vernacular surrealism. And it was just kind of this like almost organic surrealism that just kind of sprung up in kind of mass culture and popular culture, but also like in folk culture. So they like analyze it in like folk music and in like blues music. Um, but I think you could apply that like to roadside attractions themselves, because like, what is the roadside attraction? Like it doesn't really necessarily have like an economic function. Um, it's totally foreign to other places in the world. You know, you're driving down, you see like this like giant teapot or, you know, something like that. Um, it's just these hybrid formations that rise up out of the American landscape. And I, I think that they say something about like the culture of this country, you know, it's like, like Deleuze and Guattari, they, they talk about like America strictly like in terms of like conflicts between like lines of flight and attempts to like recode with Europe. And so, yeah, I, I see, and maybe this is part of the car pill because this is so wound <laughs> up, you know, with like uh, American car culture, but th that is like a line of flight, you know? So I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm totally rambling. No, but, no, that's great. Yeah. Actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, you had, like, you know, the Chicago art movement had some, like, pretty interesting painters, like Harry Who, and the, yeah. like, there was a lot of, like, really sort of, like, proto, uh, it, like, sort of comic book or cartoon art that was coming out. But, yeah, no, American surrealism is something I think a lot about. And uh, there's, like, one passage... Uh, Astral America in Beaujard's America, where he goes, Astral America, the lyrical nature of pure circulation, as against the melancholy of European analysis, the direct star blast from vectors and signals, from the vertical and the spatial, as against the fevered distance of the cultural gaze. Like, that to me is like, that sums up sort of like every sort of feeling that I have uh, about the, the kind of like, I feel like that's like the perfect summary when it comes to like, um, the kind of like inherent radical nature of America, you know, as against the melancholy of the European gaze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That utopia was temporary, but like America, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, for him, it was kind of like America was utopia until America became like sort of subsumed by uh, it became equated with commodities you know like america became and part of you know the soviet union's subversion plan was like that they can sort of imbue a kind of 
they can embed a kind of like like a fetishistic commodity driven um state of consciousness within the american psyche uh and so that was kind of like a part of like basically like america was utopia until because it and because it was utopia it was ripe for subversion until a different set of standards and systems then subverted it and turned it into what it is today uh you know which is kind of like pretty sad and I, you know, I, I, I really, I'm feeling very retro and nostalgic for like old school Americana right now. <laughs> oh, mid-century modern furniture too. Like, so,
like the melancholy of um, Europeans, because I've never read him as a melancholy thinker. I've always read him as like a, a pretty joyful thinker, yeah, even in totally. the face of dark things. Yeah, and, and I like, feel I, like some, yeah, I feel like some of that like joyful playfulness is very, very sort of needed right now. Even if yeah. like this is like a total extinction event, we're sort of like, uh, you know, it's it, we can turn it into a jubilee. You know what I mean? Like jubilees also arise during uh, chaotic periods of of near Armageddon. You know, there's a lot of things on fire. Uh, you know, it's it, so. I don't know. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really weird. And it is kind of funny that people read the postmodernists as like critics of America. And in some ways they are, but I don't know. Like I sort of, I see a lot of love in it, you know? Yeah. I, 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 mean, I see that in Baudrillard and I see like, it. It's America yeah. is certainly suffering less than Europe from the phase of convalescence that grand ideas are going through or from the decline in historical passions, you know, because America is free of these historical passions. It's like mm -hmm. it, it actually has less of an existential crisis, which is why, you know, when people like liberals like to evoke the specter of fascism, like we don't have the European melancholy to work like micro fascism that Deleuze and Guattari, that's a whole different or molecular fascism. Sorry. Yeah. That's like, that's a whole different thing. And I do think that's here, you know, that came oh, here for sure. with control society and all that other stuff. But I find it like really interesting that people are like boots on the ground, Nazi fascists. It's just like, <laughs> that's just like, that's not a part of the motor of American development. You know, yeah, just... I, I would agree with that. And like, I, I've been reading, um, I've been reading a lot. Like, are, are you familiar with um, like the, the anti-Masonry movement, like of the 1800s? <laughs> yeah, I've read. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been really fascinated with it because I kind of, I've been kind of viewing it as like one of the early like populist uprisings. Oh, totally. Like in, I'm particularly like interested in the like the part of the movement that was big in like uh, Western New York. Because out in Western New York, there was um, like these big land monopolies. Like there was the Holland Land Company, which was like a bunch of Dutch and British capital, basically, you know, literally bought up all the landscape. And so anybody that like was a, a farmer was actually like a tenant farmer. So it kind of recreated like European kind of feudal relations and the landowners started to form into like an aristocracy. And so, like, when the anti-Masonry movement kind of swept across that whole region, um, it kind of became the form through which these tenant farmers kind of revolted against these, like, foreign landlords. And so there was, like, an equivalence that was made between, like, you know, Freemasonry and the aristocracy and the landowners, which is actually funny because very few people in the Holland Land Company, like, were actually Freemasons. Like, it didn't matter whether or not they were actually Freemasons. What mattered is they gave a voice to, like, this kind of, like, insurgency that took place. And it spilled over into religion where, like, people started realizing that, like, the pastors in their churches were Freemasons. So, like, people cast out their pastors and, you know, religion started to splinter and form like interesting folk religions. So it like ended up like transforming like the entire way of life in this area. Um, but it, it's really incredible. Cause like one, it's like classic, like, you know, paranoia 
you know, that that thing that, you know, experts really hate about America, this like kind of populist paranoia. They always say, oh, it can't lead to anything good, but it, it led to, you know, uh, a pretty significant event in America in the 1800s. Like, I, I think that like, you can't take those things apart. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. So I've been reading about that. Oh yeah, I remember what I wanted to say now is that, you know, I got interested because I was reading, you know, what they were, you know, original writings from that period. And they were always talking about like the aristocracy, the aristocracy. And so like, you know, I got interested, like, what does that mean in the American context? And so you, you can dig that back to like, the founding fathers, you can go back before the American Revolution. It's so, like the aristocracy is just like the shorthand term for like the upper classes of European society itself. And so like throughout the beginning, there was like this very conscious rejection of the European system, like in a fundamental way. And then after the revolution, there was like people constantly on guard, not wanting, you know, trying to snuff, prevent the aristocracy, the European system from like forming right. again. That's actually um, that's actually a really good point because it seems like I've read very I've like seen some like weird YouTube video on this. Like I I'm not as well researched, but it does seem like yeah, it seems like a fear of the aristocracy returning in the American t context versus like how Freemasonry was banned in like Francoist Spain and in like communist yeah. countries because they associated it with, I, you would, sp you probably can verify this because I can't, but you know, like Jacob Schiff and the whole sort of like funding of the Mensheviks. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, there, was, a, there was an equation there, at least communists saw it as like kind of like, uh, anti-revolutionary uh yeah that um we, we kind of we did like a whole episode on that like uh should be releasing the second part of it soon uh the the wall street like support for the russian like revolution and not just the mensheviks like you know it, it's kind of you know like a dirty secret for a lot of people but like the bolsheviks were definitely like funded by financed. jacob yeah Schiff. yeah <laughs> Yeah, and, and like not just him, but a whole like network of yeah, and not everybody in this network was like uh, necessarily um, you know looking in the same direction. Like Jacob Schiff was extremely pro-German. He had lots of German like ties, to, like German banks, um, and so you know there was the the war that was taking place. Yeah, yeah, he was hedging his bets. Others ha were like active, like. Russophiles who, who legitimately wanted to oust the czar. And then lots were just like people who had um, like financial interests in Russia that they didn't think the czar could back. And so like they dumped money into basically like every revolutionary like group. Um, but in the end, it was really, yeah, they, they didn't, the Bolsheviks, they promoted them, but they did not want the Bolsheviks necessarily to come to power. They wanted a more like democratic, you know, kind of a lip, they wanted a liberal revolution in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yes. Yeah. Because they thought it would protect their foreign investments and stay, stay good on like these big debts that Russia incurred. And of course, what ended up happening was like this, the Bolsheviks came to power and then they defaulted on the debt, you know, and like, we're not going to pay that. Uh, but it gets complicated too, because they also still like, you know, they what they did is when they like kind of renegotiated their position 
And then they let, you know, capitalists come back in, but they kind of had the upper hand on negotiating with them. So because it's very complicated, but like, yeah, which is like the idea of like, you know, the connection with like secret societies was like an active part of um, these whole movements. And that also kind of goes back to like what I was saying a second ago about paranoia, you know, like it's, you can't have, there's never been a revolutionary movement that wasn't like teeming with like, paranoid notions and conspiracy theories right. and stuff like that. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, no, I, I, I think that paranoia is a perfectly acceptable response to the world that we live in. Um, it's, or I think there's a reason why experts, you know, you know, they talk, they hate populism, you know, yeah, they, like, oh, they, it's bad. And, and also like experts of the kind of like leftist activist class hate paranoia yeah. because they hate that there's any idea that the poor workers who they claim to represent so much have any other motive for revolution rather than this idea that they're like so materially impoverished you know what i mean so it's like yeah and i feel like there's like a deep sort of hatred for that and i was actually this weekend i met the guy who wrote the vanity fair article on the new right um, and he's super oh, really? cool fucking guy. This guy, James Pogue. And I don't trust journalists. Oh, oh I've, heard, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. My I, God. I really I like had, his writing. I had a great time with this guy. Like, uh, I thought he was, like, totally cool. Um, and he kind of made the same point because, you know, he's a conflict journalist. He's like, you know, like, leftists don't understand that if you think your life sucks – it's not racist to or like reactionary to like start a revolution or a conflict based on those merits alone. It's like actually that's perfectly fine, you know? Yeah. And so like to me, that's kind of like the biggest problem you see with like all these like like crumps and all the you know what I mean? Or just like people <laughs> like that. It's just like they think that there needs to be some sort of like justification is where Vladimir Lenin even says, he's like, Hey, look, if it happens, then it's historically true. Therefore it's not really revisionist in a certain way. So, right. And I think it's, you know, so it's a weird thing. Yeah. But it's, it's cool that, um, that people are like getting a little bit more open-minded and yeah, you know, America's totally weird that way. That's why I love it here. You know, it's, I still love America. And, and you made some post that was like, you see this, it was like a, a stucco condominium complex in like super suburban. He's like, this is beautiful to me. And I was like, yeah. oh, it is actually. Yeah. I was house sitting for my friend and I was like, so fucking sick with COVID. And so I would just like, he, yeah, he just bought a house in this like suburban, like old, like the most like quintessential suburban like landscape. And I was just like, each day I would like, you know, force myself to go take a walk in it. And it was like, damn, this is like fucking beautiful. I can't believe how beautiful this is. Like, you know, this is, this is it, you know, there's um, houses for as, like far as you can see, but everybody's got like a piece of land. Everybody's got an automobile. You know, there is, everybody here is pretty young, you know, uh, everybody here is clearly uh, of like a working class, but they have their own property. And there was just like, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't all white, you know, it was blacks and Mexicans. All It was like, damn, like th this is it, you know, it, it's, 
This is a this is suburbia not, is you know, so like coming race on. war. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like the suburbs get like the worst rap, and it's like the suburbs are some of the most interesting, most actually diverse places. You yeah, know, they're that's, not that's full what I'm of these at. like you know it's not like dime square or some like hipster on you know what i mean it's like there's actual yeah. like if you go to like orange county and and this is bring to bring it back to bojard he's like hey look you will learn more by going on a road trip in america than any sociology class or academic course that you could ever go to is just like get in a car and travel across america and that's been my experience just like as a touring musician like i yeah. realized like oh wow you know go to west virginia and go see the kind of like poverty that exists there it's like it's mm -hmm. not all black people trust me you know yeah. like it, I, I live in like where i live in kentucky it's hart county kentucky and it's the westernmost point of what's considered like appalachia and like the poverty here is really eye-opening. <laughs> like yeah. um it, before I had moved down here, it wasn't like something at all that I kind of was prepared because I'm from like, you know, up in Louisville, which is like a, a pretty major city. Yeah. And so it was like really kind of like I was surprised. I was caught off guard by it. Right. Yeah. Louisville's a great place. I love the folk art museum there. Yeah. But how many times have you been through Louisville? A few times. I had some friends in in uh, Lexington, and I did a tour where I started oh, nice. out there. So, and you know, I, I just made some friends out there and, and played some shows. And yeah, I really like Kentucky. Actually, it's cool. You know, yeah, Slint, I think Kentucky's great. Slynn is from Kentucky. I, you know, I like mm -hmm. that album a lot. Yeah, no, Kentucky is great. It's one of the it's one of the places I, I really like, you know, it's like kind of Midwest, but it's also the South and yeah. You know, also the East, like it's, it's weird. Yeah. Um, it, Kentucky is an interesting state. I mean, it's, it's very liminal. It really is. And that's, that's definitely what I like about it more so than many other States in the Midwest, you know? Yeah. And it, I mean, it, like Indiana, like thumbs down. Yeah, fuck Indiana. Wisconsin, <laughs> major thumbs down. Oh, my God. I, I don't know if I've ever been to Wisconsin. Oh, it's horrible. I don't know. Yeah. That's my opinion. I could be totally wrong, though. That's like, like whenever I say I don't like a place, it's like I was there for one day. And I played yeah. a show there and it was like dry and I, we probably got lost somewhere. So you can't like really take my word for it just because it's like I've been to every American city and state, but it hasn't like I have a very limited like gut or like sort of like gut sort of feel towards everything. It's not like I know what I'm talking about, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know, because. I, I wish I like I hope to travel more across the US in the future. And actually like um I, I might be doing like a, a big like cross country road trip in the next couple of weeks if it all works out properly. Like fingers crossed, because I've never been up to like the Pacific Northwest, but I might be like starting up there and driving back to Kentucky. Oh. Uh which would be sick. Like I really like want to do that. But besides Kentucky, like the state that I'm most familiar with is like texas because like i'm originally from there actually oh you um, are crazy yeah yeah i was from uh, galveston actually oh cool. so like wow on the yeah. east yeah yeah down there on the, on the gulf too so like 
Houston area, you know, I have like lots of family down there. So go there like all the time, but I've been like in Austin and um, San Antonio too, out there like El Paso and stuff and Corpus Christi. Yeah. So I, I, I love Texas. I think it's a great state. I do too. I think it's amazing here. Uh, and it's, it's so different every like part of it. Like just, I mean, it's huge. So that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's semi-concentrated too, but yeah, no, it, it definitely feels like a, just kind of like an Island here, which is nice. It's, it's very isolated from the rest of America. And I like, uh, the chapter in America desert forever, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it also doesn't help that it's like, I don't know. I, I I've been really de desert vibing, but like, it's also been like 107 degrees here. So I, don't, I always want to oh, wonder if there's in, like a climate change aspect. Oh, totally. I mean, climate change is very fucking real. Like I did. Yeah. That's something I think for whatever reason, it's just happening. Like it, and I mean, yeah, it's been a hundred and it's been one Oh seven here too. It's fucking hot. I mean, yeah, it's fucking awful. Actually. I, I love the heat, but I've really been suffering this summer. Yeah. This stuff, this summer has been a weird one. It's better than last summer. There was just torrential tropical rainstorms in the middle of the day every day. And even though it was like 90, it was so humid and the humidity oh, has yeah. gone down um, and, and to me, it's like, all right, like I can deal with this. Like I, I can be in sort of just like delirious in the heat or whatever, but like, I cannot take a thunderstorm in the middle of the day with like massive amounts of humidity like that. That's something yeah. I can't take. But when it's, when it's stable, uh, because also like it abolishes time and it makes it psychedelic for my recession. And then it's yes. just like, so when the heat is like the way it is now, it's like, all right, this is like recession maxing. I could just go swim. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's like totally fine. But it's, it's weird when you're trying to swim in like Lake Travis and all of a sudden there's like a tropical thunderstorm. Uh, you know what it, I mean? Does that happen? Like, like, that's almost sounds like Florida, you know, like a Florida, like every day at two, it rains. That, uh, that was it, last is it usually like that here. Yeah, every day, huh. and I can't stand that. That's like the worst thing to me. Uh, but this yeah. summer, it's been pretty constant, and it, it's been cool, you know? Damn, I'm, I'm jealous. Yeah, like, because <laughs> last summer, here, like, we had, like, constant tornadoes. Like, I don't know if you remember, there was, like, insane oh, tornadoes in, yeah. like, December. Like, it was fucking scary as hell. Like, one went by, like, an, a mile, maybe not even a mile from my house, Um it was, it was nuts. But now it's just like, I think yesterday or was it today was the first time it's rained in like three months. <laughs> like, uh, just absolutely insane. Yeah. It's, um, it is kind of funny, but yeah, it's like, uh, America's climate, you know, it's almost like Catherine Malibu says that, um, for the first time, a man is seeing himself as a geological force. And oh, that's, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, and and so I'm kind of thinking about that, like in terms of space and all kinds of things like that, and just like geography in general. And uh, yeah, I, I did want to read um, that that uh, the, the classic 
you know, compass geography uh, footnote from a thousand plateaus because uh-huh. it's always like talking about like the French or post-structuralist reception of America. It always, always comes up like in my mind. And I think you mentioning geography, it's like a perfect like example. Yeah. You um, should read that. You should, you should. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. I got it right here. And he's talking about like Leslie Fiedler's book, the return of the vanishing American. Have you, have you read that? I know of, of her, but I, I haven't read that. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting book that it's basically about how like the, the American it's about the American like relationship with like indigenous people and how, how the, you know, the proverbial like white man wants to uh, kind of just become the, the indigenous like other. And so, Oh kind no, of, like, I'm thinking yeah. of somebody else. Sorry. Leslie Fieldler is, he's like a literature guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. Right. Right. Never and so it's so like, he, he analyzes this like trope of the, the, displaced European wanting to become the other as like the defining like characteristic of American literature. Um, it's the argument that he's making and Deleuze and Guattari write, uh, this book contains a fine analysis of geography and its role in American mythology and literature and the reversal of directions. In the East, there was a search for a specifically American code and for a recoding with Europe. It gives the examples of, a. Uh, Henry James Eliot Pound uh, says in the South, there was the overcoding of the slave system with its ruin and the ruin of the plantation during the civil war. So that'd be Faulkner and Caldwell. Then from the North came capitalist decoding. The West, however, played the role of the line of flight, combining travel, hallucination, madness, the Indians, perceptive and mental experimentation, the shifting of the frontier, the rhizome, and then in parentheses, they write Ken Casey and his fog machine, the beat generation, et cetera. And they say every great American author creates a cartography, even in his or her style, in contrast to what is done in Europe. Each makes a map that is directly connected to the real social movements crossing America. And like, like I just think that this is such a wonderful statement. And it's kind of a shame that they relegated it to like a footnote. Because I think that it lays out something incredibly important about America and the way, you know, these directions take place, which is this geographical dimension that you're referring to. But in a lot of ways, it's also kind of um, inaccurate at this point, or it's kind of dated. Because I don't think that those directions necessarily make sense, you know. Is the wet, like, you know, the literal West still the line of flight, even if maybe... There's like a metaphorical like West, but you know, like, like you went from California, the westernmost point, to like Texas. You know, that's yeah, so there's exactly. an interesting but, but Texas is more West metaphorically than California yeah. is now. Which is Yeah, exactly. Weird. Yeah, it, it's like California kind of like recoded on that like eastern east coast. Uh at least that's kind of like how it is seen from you know, you stand in like the West or in the Midwest, you know, it's the, you know, the, the classic kind of like truism about like East coast liberals, which just are like, you know, coastal elites. And so like, it's like the West and the East coast kind of converge, but then like middle America ends up personifying what that like West was actually supposed to be all about all along. Right. It's, yeah. and it is, it is actually kind of strange just because like, yeah, 
California has become so bombed out. And, you know, and another thing is like California was really this kind of like gaudy, uh, purple, sort of kitschy place that didn't really, you know, it, it was a lot cheaper and a lot more sort of like ideologically less coherent than the East Coast. And I think through like sort of just like basic media stuff and also like the coastal elites kind of thing used to only really apply uh, to the East Coast. You know, if you were a coastal Mm -hmm. elitist, you were basically from the East Coast where you had like the Ivy League schools and California was just kind of this like trash zone. And but it's kind (laughs) of weird because like. Yeah. And, you know, California had a reputation for being sort of like uh, intellectually challenged. You know, there isn't like a great culture of intellectualism that comes from California, save for like Joan Didion or or a few fiction writers. But even like the classic Los Angeles uh, fiction writers like uh, uh, Ask the Dust by John Fonte, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like Charles Bukowski's like their guy or even like um yeah or even like who's the woman who who's played chess next to uh marcel duchamp naked what's her fucking name uh, Eve oh, Babbitt, no who just died like these aren't like intellectuals you know what i mean they're like right. they're like sunset strip trash people basically <laughs> and, and, and it's funny to see like la or california try to like re-territorial like re-territorialize like that kind of like royalist refuse of the academy and the intellectualism of the east coast it's it's like trying to claim some of that for itself and it's kind of sad because it's frankly made it a shittier less interesting place and a less western and exploratory place is that what made you decide to leave California? I think so. Yeah, it was just it. It didn't feel like that anymore. Yeah. What is there a point in time that you can kind of point to where like, you know, that was there and then it ceased to be, and now this like new California came into being. Like, I'm always interested in like, you know, I got just thinking like chronologically, and you know, maybe I should get away from that. But I always like to think about how things develop and kind of you know, look at their causes. I do too. You know, it's hard for me to point out because I have such a limited experience. It was in such a particular scene. And, and so it, it, I think it started happening. I basically, when it started getting more expensive in like 2000 and, uh, 2000 and probably 14, 15, you know, was when you started noticing, because a lot of New Yorkers and people in San Francisco or like whatever, they would sort of like put their nose up at LA and then they all started moving there. So LA got this massive influx of like New York transplants. And I think that had something to do with it. Yeah. That's interesting because like, uh, cities like Lexington are starting to get like a, a big like New York like transplant population, and property prices are going insane because of it. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I you know I wouldn't want to live in New York. So. 
Yeah, no, same. Uh, it's it's not for me. I'm like a, not at I, all. I'm like desert island, like phase shifter, unified guitar solo at the edge of a cliff over a Mesoamerican uh, pueblo civilization, uh, drenched in like sweat uh, during a recession. Uh, you know, like that's like where my mind is at. Like, yeah, and then yeah. like cartoons are like playing in the background and like, sp- I, I like, like SpongeBob SquarePants and like, I love <laughs> action movies. Like I saw Lethal Weapon 3 last night. That was great. Oh, sick. It's so weird. Yeah. Cause like, I feel like everything has become so self triangulating. Like action is almost like, like we really have to start looking at shitty action movies like modern works of art because they're so imaginative and they're, they're they have so much fidelity to the event in the kind of like Badu sense. You know, it's like they're, they're very like other, you know, they're not self-reflective. It's just like pure event after event after event. And it's really like a total break from the narcissistic solipsism that we see today. So I'm like, Super into action movies right now. Like yeah, Cyborg dude, by Van Damme. That's a classic. Yes. Dude, I love that movie. That that movie is, it pushes like just like the action tropes so far that it becomes like an art film, in my opinion. It's like, it's like a piece of avant-garde cinema right there. Um, but like it, I've, uh, a couple of months ago, started watching a lot of like, rewatching like a lot of John Woo movies, like his American oh, ones. Nice. Like, so I watched like Hard Target and like Broken Arrow. Um, those movies are so good. And I right. find them like really, really interesting because like Hard Target is like, you know, it's Van Damme and it, it's set yeah. in New Orleans. And then like Broken Arrow is like in the American Southwest. And I find it so fascinating. Like, the way that John Woo shot like these iconic Louisville locator Louisville, I don't know why I said that American locations is that like, he makes it look so like alien. Like it doesn't look like America anymore. It just like drags this otherness out of it. And like when I was watching broken era, like the way that America, like John Woo presents the American Southwest net film looks like the way that I think that Baudrillard describes it in the beginning, you know? And it's like, such a perfect comparison of like the frozen catastrophe of the geological landscape with like this lost nuclear weapon that, you know, John Travolta and his like most obnoxious role is like, you know, trying to set off or whatever. I don't know. It, it's a fu- fantastic movie. And and so is face off by the way. Like, yeah. Face off is flick. really good. Yeah. I, that's I, probably I, the best of the three. Yeah, I haven't seen Broken Arrow since I was like a little kid. Yeah, I had neither. <laughs> it's like I need no, to I'm watch, watch that. I, I'm like I'm on a total. Yeah, that's just yeah, Christian Slater. That's like perfect. That's like exactly what I want to see because it's just. And my girlfriend was like, I she likes like Gen Z, t- like movies about girl witches in like high school and stuff. Yeah, and I, I, I'm just like. She's like, your action movies are boring. <laughs> they're not boring. They're perfect. They're perfect films. <laughs> they're so good. Uh, I, I'm going to do a critical reevaluation of Mission Impossible 2 next. Like, I'm, I'm going to watch that. And I bet it's going to be a lot better than I remember because that's another John Woo movie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, man. the one that like everybody panned because it has like a Lint Biscuit soundtrack or something that came out in 2000. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, I really like La Femme Nikita, the 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 TV series that was on. I've never seen the TV series. Oh, it's awesome! You gotta see it. It's so what, what, good. When it's, is that from? It, it's on. It's from the nineties, uh, but it was based off the French movie. But it's a Cana- yeah. It's it's like a Canadian television series where it's like the the style and the music is like so loud and everything that happens in it is so weird and every action scene just like uh it's always like something like you have to f- like figure out this code or the submarine is going to crash into this thing <laughs> and there's always there's always like things like weird stuff like like there's like like a moral dilemma like Cause she's like very compassionate weirdly. So it's like, you have to shoot this dog and they're like her like team is always like putting her to like these like moral tests to like get her to be like super amoral. But yeah, it's a great right. show. I would, I, I highly suggest that I've been watching a lot of that, but yeah, this is all part of like the recession to me. For so yeah, sure. Recession yeah. trutherism. We've been going for a while. What are you? Yeah. Um, we, like I might need to hop off here, but same. Like, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I would love to continue this conversation. I like, would too. Yeah. We, we could do a like, second. We, we didn't part. even, yeah, we didn't even get to central bank digital currencies. Oh, God. We got to get, we, we got to yeah. do that. I'm like literally down whenever. This is so okay. much fun. Oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. This let's, is the let's, most let's fun I've been, this. I've had in a conversation <laughs> in forever because it's just like everything I like to talk about. Oh, same, dude. Like, I, I could honestly keep going for hours, but, you know, there's people are waiting for me. Yeah, so. yeah, same. But, yeah, man, if, if there's any way you wanted to end or maybe we could just fade it out. Let's just fade this out and, you know, pro- promise to do it again soon. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Like, All I'm, right. Thanks, I'm Barry. Very, very thrilled to be on. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. All right. Have, Later, a, have a good rest of your night. All right. You do the same. <laughs> Thank you.